CBS presents this program in color. Last week, as you recall, we left Dr. Smith peacefully dozing while on a field trip with Will Penny and the robot. All were unaware that nearby lay a machine capable of producing incredible metallic creatures from another world. I'm innocent. The plants on this planet do not follow the Earth method of transpiration, utilizing carbon dioxide and releasing oxygen. And where did you acquire this useless information, you tiresome thesaurus? The instructor is not to be interrupted during lectures. Instructor, indeed. How you could have been selected to educate young minds, but I am available is beyond me. He's right, Dr. Smith. You're not supposed to talk while he's teaching. Very well. Then I shall occupy my mind with more gainful pursuits. But remember, when you grow up in absolute ignorance, don't blame me. Remember... Where'd Dr. Smith go? Search me. I'll go find him. What are you doing, Dr. Smith? Experimenting, my dear. This machine appears to be an instant painting device, a galactic art form. That's weird. Quite so, but I can remedy that. What happens when you get it like you want it? When the picture is complete, you press a button and it prints it for you. This must be the one. Warning, warning. Alien transpositive generating machine. Do not touch it. It is dangerous. Do not silence you gregarious gremlin. This must be the one. Now here we go. Warning. Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 36th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled the Android Machine. And you know, Kurt, before we begin, I just want to make it clear right up front that we are not, we are not doing this show to shill for Google's Android operating system. You know, for the record, I have never in my life owned an Android phone. I have always used an iPhone. And if Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, 
who I understand is a big Lost in Space fan, by the way, should happen to one day advertise on this show. Well, that's just a happy coincidence, folks. That's right. We know you're listening, Tim. We can spy on your podcast the same way you could spy on our iPhone browser. The only difference is we won't sell your information to others. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, a few production notes before we begin with a story. After entertaining viewers previously with Space Circus, the married writing team of Bob and Wanda Duncan made a quick return for their second Lost in Space script. If their last whimsical story brushed the line between sci-fi and fantasy, this tale breezes right past it, featuring everything from a celestial department store to a spaceship that looked like a gilded elevator car from the early 1900s. (laughs) Still, the android machine does it with imagination and a great deal of heart. The story also benefits from the time-tested themes of self-sacrifice and compassion, The characters are well-developed, so we become invested. There's drama that's believable despite the unbelievable circumstances. And there's humor that never descends into farce. In short, the Duncan story is one of the more entertaining episodes of this type to be found in the series, which in part explains why story editor Tony Wilson would ask them to pen three more episodes of Lost in Space. And Erwin Allen would pay them for 12 more assignments on some of his other shows. But Kurt, as grateful as the Duncans were to Alan for the work, it didn't stop them from noticing some of Irwin's um, eccentricities, did it? I got news for you, chum. Everyone noticed Uncle Irwin's eccentricities. I mean, how could you not? (laughs) The only question was, would you play along or would you dare say something about it? Now, Mark Cushman's Lost in Space book relates a great story from Bob Duncan who describes Irwin this way. He was a megalomaniac with extremely high control needs. He made his fortune developing concepts and surrounding himself with the finest talent in the business. I remember Irwin's shiny new Rolls Royce sitting out in front of his old office building on the Fox lot whenever he was in residence. The story editor's office was on the second floor, and this required the writers to file past Irwin's open door with the desk facing outward. Over a period of years, we developed a feeling of dread that his voice would ring out and call us in for one of his games. One day, Wanda and I came in early in the morning to work on a rewrite for a show destined to be shot the next day. We worked until 7 p.m. that night and then started to leave. Irwin's voice rang out as we walked past his office. Then, without saying another word, he stopped everybody who went past his door, called them into his office, and asked them, why are the Duncans leaving? When they couldn't provide an answer, he would sit them down. Then he'd call in the next person who walked through. Why are the Duncans leaving? It was crazy. Most people had no idea who Watton and I even were. We didn't know them. Finally, after half an hour of this, Time Tunnel story editor Arthur Weiss passed by, and Irwin called him and said, Why are the Duncans leaving? And Arthur, in his mild-mannered way, says, Because they finished their script. Irwin shrugged. It released everyone to go home. It was madness, but that was Irwin. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh my gosh. I love that. We were we would sit in dread. Of course, it makes you wonder, why didn't they volunteer an answer? You know, I mean, this is like the emperor's new clothes. Everyone's too afraid. Yeah. Just sit there and, and shut up. <laughs> Be quiet. Yeah. Maybe a little kid will volunteer the right answer. <laughs> oh, boy. oh, that's crazy. Wow. Well, 
Shooting his third episode for season two is 48-year-old Don Richardson. With seven Lost in Space episodes under his belt, he'd broken the code on how to stay in Irwin's good graces, namely by staying on schedule. And he did so in this shoot, getting the episode in the can within the budgeted six days, from the 12th through the 16th of August, 1966. Of course, being drinking buddies with story editor Tony Wilson didn't hurt either. And as a result, Richardson would go on to direct 19 more episodes of Lost in Space, more than any other director. Yeah, let that be a lesson to all you inspiring writers. It's not what you think that counts, it's who you drink with that counts. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> uh, well, all our regular characters are featured on this one. And guest starring as the android Verda is 33-year-old actress Dee Hartford. The former Vogue magazine fashion model was fortunate to be the sister-in-law of Groucho Marx because Irwin was very close to Marx. In fact, Irwin treated Groucho like a second father, and Marx returned the affection. Dee Hartford had first come to Allen's attention when she appeared with Groucho in Allen's 1952 feature production, A Girl in Every Port. <laughs> Later, she made numerous guest appearances on popular TV shows of the era, including The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, The Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, Batman, and several other Irwin Allen shows. She would reappear for two more episodes of Lost in Space. Later in season two, again as Verda in Revolt of the Androids. And then in season three, as Nancy Pi Squared in Space Beauty. Her character's name Verda was meant to be a play on the Spanish word for green, verde, because as originally described in the treatment, the shapely android was a, quote, wild-looking thing with green hair and a far-out costume. The green hair was eventually replaced with a three-horned silver skull cap, but at least they put the green lipstick and eyeshadow over her silver face makeup, and the far-out costume was an aluminum miniskirt over silver yoga pants. I'd say that's pretty wild. Oh, yeah, and did you notice that her horns actually blinked? It was like the three <laughs> eyes on that mutant fish from the famous uh, Simpsons episode. Remember that? Blinky. <laughs> <laughs> Blinky. Oh, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, I didn't catch it at first, but after watching it a couple of times, it's because it's a little subtle, but when they do a close-up, you can see him blinking. Yeah. That was a lot of effort for a very minor, <laughs> minor effect, but uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, playing the part of Mr. Zumdish, the complaint manager for the Celestial Department Store, was 66-year-old prolific character actor Fritz Feld. Perfectly cast in this role, his specialty was playing officious clerks, waiters, managers, and assorted high-maintenance officials, mostly in light comedy settings. In a career that stretched decades, Feld would rack up over 200 acting credits in TV and films. Oh, well, let me just interrupt to say there, talk about a career that went a long time. He was in the original silent movie version of The Golem. Mm. He was the, yeah, he was uncredited. He was the jester in that. So that was like one of the earliest uh, horror movies of all time. Wow. We're talking way back machine there. Wow. Yeah, that could have been one of his first uh, uh, appearances. Yeah, 1920. 1920. Interesting. I guess he started even a little earlier than that, but that was a, a famous movie in the 1920s. Okay. Well, that wouldn't have been his first one then because it, IMDb says... Yeah, 1917, it goes yeah, all the way back. 1917 until shortly before his death in 1993, and he was totally recognizable <laughs> whenever, he, whenever you saw him. 
Out of all those parts, though, his three memorable appearances as Zumdish on Lost in Space, which included season two's later The Toymaker and season three's Two Weeks in Space, Feld garnered a sort of cult character status among Lost in Space fans, most notably due to his signature double mouth pop, <laughs> which he used to underscore his character's sense of self-importance. Feld was also an avid chess player and enjoyed playing with the stars he performed with. During his time working on Lost in Space, he and the Grand Master of the Oxford University Chess Club, Dr. Smith, a.k.a. Jonathan Harris, would spend time between takes enjoying the game of great minds. And Feld made sure there were always pictures to prove it. I'll try to post one of those, Kurt, uh, of Feld and Harris doing that on our Facebook page. Oh, wow. And you thought millennials were obnoxious with their cell phones. I could only imagine, wait, Jonathan, hold that pose. I need someone to snap a picture of us playing together as you pounce on my knight with your queen. <laughs> uh, it is a great picture, though. Yeah, yeah. That'll be a fun thing to do. Well, Zumdish's elevator operator slash bodyguard was played by 55-year-old Tiger Joe Marsh. The stocky 1937 world heavyweight champion wrestler became a bit player on TV in the early 1950s after he became the original Mr. Clean in commercials. By the time he ended his career in the early 1980s, he'd earned 50 acting credits on series like Perry Mason, I Spy, The Munsters, and Chips. He would also make a reappearance with Feld in The Toymaker. Well, you know, based on his big bones, he must have had recurring roles on chips with lots of guacamole. <laughs> I mean, that guy must have weighed 300 pounds, man. He reminded me of Tor Johnson, the bald wrestler from the Edward movies, like yeah. uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Sure. What a character. Yeah. Well, it didn't help. I think they gave him a, a jacket that was like two sizes too small, so he's busting out of that thing in this one. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I love it. Well, finally, our go-to masked hero, Dawson Palmer, appears in this episode as the grisly cave monster. We can only hope that Palmer finally got that raise he was asking for, because this week, Irwin skipped out on giving him a screen credit. Mm. Uh, Palmer should remember the immortal words of General Patton, who said, And a slave stood behind the parading conqueror, holding a golden crown and whispering in his ear the warning, that all glory is fleeting. That's funny. Then again, maybe Palmer said, you know what, Erwin, after seeing how this monster turned out, maybe I don't want the credit this, this week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we'll get to the monster. <laughs> Hold your fire, son. <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah. Just like last time, there was no original score written for the Android machine. Instead... It relied on tracked music from season one, including a healthy helping of cues from John Williams' magical score from My Friend Mr. Nobody, one of my favorites, and perfect for the mood of this fantastical tale. Well, with that, let's get on with the story. The Act One teaser starts with the narrator reminding us that last week, we left Dr. Smith peacefully dozing while on a field trip with Will, Penny, and the robot. All were unaware that nearby lay a machine capable of producing incredible metallic creatures from another world. Well, the robot's lecture to the children disturbs the dozing doctor from his slumber and puts him in an instant sour mood. 
which is aggravated when the tiresome thesaurus admonishes Dr. Smith for interrupting the lessons. In fact, the very idea that B9 could be selected to educate young minds is an affront to Dr. Smith's dignity. And before he storms off to occupy his mind with more gainful pursuits, he pauses to warn the children. Remember, when you grow up in absolute ignorance, don't blame me. Remember! As our miffed miscreant exits the frame, Will and Penny exchange silent smiles and return to their studies. You know, we should pause everything here just to take a moment and offer up a silent serenity prayer for Dr. Smith because he didn't just wake up. He woke up proclaiming his innocence. Yes. He can't even sleep without getting in trouble. Think think what that must be like, being him. He knows that whenever anything goes wrong, he's going to get blamed for it. And the worst part of it is that they're probably right. He is to blame for anything going wrong. His anxiety level must be off the charts. <laughs> That's true. But that is a running gag in the show. That's one of his... Yes. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. <laughs> I love it. Well, moments later, Dr. Smith enters a deserted sandy clearing where a strange alien computer sound attracts his attention. Intrigued, the curious conniver discovers a large piece of abandoned alien technology. I say abandoned because this double-wide refrigerator-sized mechanism is partially covered with some moss and dead branches. As Dr. Smith clears away the debris, we're able to get a better view of the mystery machine, and it certainly appears to be out of this world. Flanked on either side by two silver control panels, the apparatus is dominated by an oversized orange processing cabinet, tricked out with a large central display screen and two psychedelic spiral pinwheel discs, one above and one below the screen. It's an eye-catching if somewhat wacky-looking prop that has another elaborate hidden feature which we only get a glimpse of in the teaser. Namely, the fact that the front panel of the orange console momentarily slides up to reveal a flashing cybernetic humanoid silhouette during the trans-positive generation sequence. As you can imagine, a prop that detailed is too good to see just once. And sure enough, it'll make another appearance later this season in The Toy Maker. Oh joy, I can't wait. <laughs> uh, we're going to have to find out if there's a prop that doesn't get used <laughs> more than yeah. once in this show. That's going to be the one that's going in the museum. <laughs> the ultimate treasure hunt. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the camera cuts back for a quick moment to B9 and the kids, wondering where Smith's gone. But that was all the time needed for the doctor to start fiddling with his newfound discovery. Because when we cut back to the clearing, our meddling malefactor is shown doing what he does best, flipping a random switch on the cryptic contraption's controls. Well, Smith's unauthorized actions instantly energize the dubious device, causing its pinwheels to spin hypnotically, and the monitor weirdly flashes a series of artists' renditions of an attractive woman with different hairstyles and garb. Dr. Smith gasps in delight at the pretty images, but just then, an inquisitive Penny arrives, followed directly by Will and the robot, who are equally intrigued by Smith's experiments. Flipping the next switch displays yet another version of the lovely lady on the screen, 
causing Dr. Smith to declare, This machine appears to be an instant painting device, a galactic art form. When he foolishly reaches to hit print on the cosmic copier, the robot issues a stern warning that it is dangerous. Warning! Warning! Alien transpositive generating machine! Do not touch it! It is dangerous! Do not! But the deluded doctor silences the gregarious gremlin and presses on. This must be the one. Now here we go. Uh-oh. Warning! Our fearful foursome seek cover behind a large boulder as the sky erupts with powerful bolts of cosmic energy. Followed quickly by a brilliant blast of flash powder. Oh dear. When the storm passes and the smoke clears away from the machine, our space pioneers stare awestruck at the baffling sight of a large transparent cylinder, which does indeed contain a life-size printed version of the charming silver-clad lady from the screen. But unlike how Dr. Smith imagined, this printout is in 3D. Oh boy. (laughs) Eyes closed and arms raised like a ref signaling touchdown, the enigmatic emissary stands still as a statue as Dr. Smith reluctantly approaches the tube to check out the special delivery. When B9 finally rolls up, Smith demands, Well, what is it? Report. It does not compute. What do you mean it doesn't compute, you ninny? It is an android, manufactured with electrical circuits. But there is an element which does not compute. Convinced that the alluring android comes in peace, the children prompt their shaky chaperone into opening the cylinder, causing Smith to yelp in trepidation. (laughs) Far from frightened, Henny decides to make first contact with the alien by introducing herself, then asking for her name. The android's eyes slowly stir open as she lowers her arms, then mechanically answers that her name is Verda. But the mood turns tense as the focused fembot exits the cylinder and reveals that because Dr. Smith ordered her from the machine, she is now tuned to his psychic frequency. She is his. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Alarmed by her claim and lax social distancing practices, Dr. Smith timidly backs away from the relentless robotrix and objects. Certainly not. I did not order you, you unearthly creature. Go back where you came from. You have ordered me. I cannot go back. I am yours forever. Oh, the pain, the pain. (laughs) Oh, the pain indeed, Kurt. I'm sure no one's surprised that despite all B9's warnings not to touch, our old baboon, Dr. Smith, just couldn't resist pushing that button. But one thing that did surprise me was his reaction at hearing Verda say that she was his forever. Back in Wish Upon the Star, Smith was dying to have a servant companion. (laughs) What's going on here, Kurt? Why do you think Daddy Zack is playing hard to get? (laughs) Well, I'm just spitballing here, mind you, but maybe Smith is more attracted to butlers than maids. I I don't get it. I I mean, I would certainly prefer (laughs) Verda over Sebastian Cabot any day of the week, but... You know, I don't have the refined taste of Dr. Zachary, so maybe we should give him the benefit of the doubt. But I do want to defend Smith on one point. He's not really the one to blame for the arrival of this week's threat, and that's in air quotes, okay? 
I know I'm contradicting my earlier comments that he's always to blame, but if you carefully re-watch that footage of him operating the machine before the robot interrupts him, you'll see that Smith is about to flip a rocker switch on the machine panel. But no, the robot has to issue his stern warning, and that changes history because then Smith presses a completely different button, Mm. the one that creates Verta. So in reality... It's the robot that's to blame this time, even though he will continue to blame Smith, and so will everyone else, including (laughs) Verda. (laughs) Oh, dear. That is some close observation. I didn't catch that at all. So the the wrong button. See, sometimes it pays not to have the Blu-ray. There you go. Wild. Well, just before we go to opening credits, the Platinum Princess continues her personal space invasion of the backpedaling Dr. Smith. No, stay away from me, madam. Stay away from me. But we'll have to wait until after the break to see what other orders are in store from the Android Machine. Hi, this is Marta Kristen. I play Judy Robinson on Lost in Space, and you're here with Lane and Kurt for the Alpha Control Podcast. Well, when we return from the break, we're focused on a close-up of the Robinson's laser drill rig, boring into the wellhead as the title cards flash by. When the drill shuts off, the camera pulls back to reveal daughter Judy, breathlessly filling Dad and Major Weston on Dr. Smith's latest misadventure, an android he ordered from the alien transfer machine by mistake. The professor shakes his head in irritation. He was told never to touch alien equipment. Yeah, well, you know Smith, quips Don. Promising to take care of the disobedient doctor later, Dad cheerfully tells Judy that since they've already mined their quota of deuteronium for the day, to let mom know they'll be back in time for dinner. But before she leaves, Professor Robinson's tone turns serious. He doesn't want anyone else coming up to the drill area. When she asks why, Don gravely answers by offering to show her. And the mystery deepens as the three castaways silently exit the frame. Mm. You know, Kurt, when John said that little line that Smith was told never to touch alien equipment. He sounded a little irritated, but weirdly to me, he also sounded surprised. (laughs) Why would he be surprised? It didn't make any sense to me either. Why worry about him touching the alien equipment? It's the Jupiter 2 equipment that he should be worried about Smith touching. Oh, there's a pretty little button. Yes. (laughs) How many times? Oh, that's amazing. He's that old baboon. He just can't resist, right? Yeah. Well, moments later, we're focused on a large footprint that looks identical to the prints made by that three-toed freak Uncle Thaddeus from Ghost in Space. But strangely, when Major West asks Judy if she's ever seen anything like that before, she just shakes her head no. Wow. My how memories fade. I I don't think I'd forget a footprint like that, Kurt, would you? (laughs) Well, that's because you're not woke enough to discriminate against footprints of different color. But this was the 1960s. They didn't have to be politically correct. In fact, Uncle Thaddeus was just a regular three-toed monster footprint imprinted in white sand. This three-toed print is black, 
like it was burned into the sand. Mm. And I don't ever remember seeing any other footprints burned into the ground in Lost in Space or any other program. But I gotta say, it conjures up images of a burning hot fire-covered demon, which is a lot scarier than the monster we end up getting. So enjoy this brief moment of actual suspense while it lasts, because, spoiler alert, it ain't gonna last long. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) you did spoil it. I love it. Well, kneeling clustered around the print, near the vine-covered entrance to a large cavern, the three castaways rise to discuss the disturbing find. Theorizing that whatever made the print lives inside the cave and is nocturnal, Professor Robinson admits they haven't actually seen it yet or had a chance to hunt it down. Don adds that as long as it doesn't bother us, we're not going to bother it. Yeah, right. I'll believe that when I see it. The loss of space motto has always been destroy all monsters. Ah, did that one have Gidra or? (laughs) (laughs) Destroy all monsters. That's great. (laughs) Well, I guess John's concerned about Judy's memory, too, because not only does he firmly remind her again to tell everybody that this place is strictly off limits. But just to make sure, he says, he'll also put up some reminder signs, just so you don't forget. (laughs) Promising she'll tell the others, Judy heads for home. Foreshadowing trouble, the men grimly glance back at the cave, then quickly exit the frame back to the drill site. Kurt, I teased them for not recognizing that print, but I did like that little telegraph scene. Not only was it nice to see Marta Christen get some more screen time, more importantly, though, it all but screamed, Hey, we're going to get a monster. Yeah, it's kind of funny. CBS has obviously told Irwin that they can't show any more scary monsters, but they didn't tell him they can't telegraph about any more scary monsters. So we still get some really scary lead-ups to some not-so-scary monsters. Mm-hmm. Remember that big clawed creature making growling noises in the dark fog of Forbidden World? That was pretty damn scary. It was. Till we saw, of course, it was a big bird with balls dangling under its beak and Wally Cox. <laughs> but serious monsters lovers still enjoy the anticipation. Right. Just don't expect delivery anymore. You know, it's like Lucy holding the football for Charlie Brown. She's always going to yank it back at the last second. Sheesh. Yeah. What would you call the Lost in Space there? Monster teases or something? Yeah. <laughs> or something like yeah, can... but you know what? I mean, it gets to be fun after a while. I mean, because yeah. it's so... Pr- it's a trope. Yeah. And uh, yeah. if it bends, then it's funny. funny. If, if it, it breaks, breaks, it's not funny. It's not funny. That's right. <laughs> mm. Well, dissolving back to the drill site, Professor Robinson grabs a ready-made danger sign as he quizzes the major on how much fuel they've got so far. About three canisters, he says. But, unfortunately, the vein's beginning to run out, and the Robinsons need five of them for blast-off into space. Uh Uh-oh. Hoping to reach that magic number five before it quits, the professor instructs Don to set the drill on automatic and lend him a hand with those signs. Sensing John's anxious to get back to the ship, Major West asks if he's worried about that android. But with a chummy wink and nudge, the professor says, Well, I think I better take a look at her. With that, Don switches on the drill, and the men march out of the area. 
Yeah, isn't it just a little odd how Mary John seems much more interested in the Fembot than Bachelor Smith is? He hasn't even seen her, and he wants to start drilling. But I'm start sure drilling? Just, yeah, I'm sure it's just scientific curiosity, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, you know, Kurt, I was happy to see them drilling for deuteronium, though, because it gave me a, a little glimmer of hope that we might not be stuck on this miserable veil for 24 more episodes. But when they made a point of mentioning that the well was running dry and they needed five cans to blast off, I could just hear Irwin in my head saying, ah, 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 not so fast. Yeah, that five cans may be a bit of insider Hollywood code. You know, like, one can of deuteronium equals, say, a million bucks. So he's signaling to the audience that we're going to get stuck on this rock until the show gets a hit of production cost by at least five million bucks. <laughs> and only then will we change the set. I mean, seriously, they do say later on in the same episode that deuteronium represents a universal form of money. So right. it does kind of make sense, doesn't it? You know, It does. I like that, too. And somehow Will knew that. You know, It's like, yeah. deuteronium's a universal <laughs> currency dad <laughs> yeah he's basically signaling to groucho okay here's the game plan don't worry groucho <laughs> well I we're gonna groucho, make your money back <laughs> yeah i have to confirm this so somebody will set the record straight but i think groucho might have been one of Irwin's investors too in, oh absolutely in, yeah i think that's right yeah in fact i thought you I, you said that earlier in today's podcast well I, dude you gotta check your uh your what what do they call that stuff where you can't remember anything <laughs> oh uh, alzheimer's yeah that's what it's called yeah okay maybe i did mention that he was an investor i know they were buddies but yes you did okay all right we'll check the tape it's on the tape this is so. how you can tell a true professional folks <laughs> they can read the script convincingly and they don't even know what it's saying <laughs> you're just uh, you're gonna be like a newscaster i busted i busted yeah, they just pay me to look good on TV, sir. <laughs> look good and sound good. Remember John? Was it John Hurt that was playing? Oh, William Hurt, broadcast news. Yeah, yeah, broadcast news. That was yeah. incredible. That was. Yeah, he could do the crying on command. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, next we're inside the upper deck of the Jupiter Two, while Verda, standing at attention, is being interviewed by Professor Robinson as a smiling Marine and Judy closely observe. Staring blankly as she answers in a robotic tone, the mechanical maiden matter-of-factly informs our space family that she was manufactured at Unit 12 of the RDS Remote Unit, whatever that means, and created by the Andromedan Civilization. Ooh. <laughs> you know, it's really great that Lost in Space teaches so much science so that kids can learn about astronomy while watching TV. The only problem is it's junk science, and they teach baloney <laughs> astronomy. Andromeda is not a star. It's a galaxy. Billions of stars. Actually, scientists estimate it's a trillion stars, twice as many as our own galaxy, the Milky Way. So it makes no sense whatsoever... <laughs> That there's a single Adronima civilization, unless all trillion civilizations are the Borg and they operate as a single collective. Now, <laughs> if that's the case, they've just made a colossal mistake by inviting a Borg drone inside their spaceship. Mm. But I kind of doubt that's what happened. This is just another in a long line of sci-fi gobbledygook that gets tossed about and lost in space. <laughs> the writers don't care about accurate astronomy anymore. The script editors don't care. Irwin Allen doesn't care. The actors don't care. So apparently 
think we shouldn't care either. So I'll just shut up and I'll believe the gee whiz is sounds great sci-fi mumbo jumbo because after all, it is just a TV show. Still, it bugs me. Couldn't they have just at least cracked open an encyclopedia just for once? <laughs> Jeezy. Oh. Yeah. I mean, that reminds me of that episode. Oh, God, what was that? Wild Adventure when they <laughs> they had the solar system chart right on the wall. <laughs> We're passing the sun again. <laughs> I never realized we had binary sun system. And- oh, that's crazy. <laughs> Well, in addition to being from the Andromedan civilization, Verda's also programmed to serve her master, the one who ordered her, Dr. Smith. Taking it all in, the Robinsons seem to have run out of questions, at least for the nonce, which allows Verda to ask a question. Permission to be excused? Why? <laughs> because she promised to give Dr. Smith a foot bath. Oh, joy. <laughs> With permission granted, the three Robinsons exchange giggles and watch as the silver servant saunters out of the airlock on her little mission of mercy. After she's departed, the trio discuss their new visitor. Maureen says despite her strange appearance, Verda's really quite pleasant to have around, and she's awfully good with the children. John doesn't disagree, but he's bothered by the way she keeps mentioning that word, ordered. Dr. Smith ordered me, which might imply that someone's going to come around demanding payment. Hmm. It could just be her way of speaking, says Maureen. Still unsure, the scene ends as the professor diplomatically answers, possibly, then adds, since he doesn't think Verda's dangerous, for the time being, she can stay. Hmm. You know, Kurt, that was another in a series of short and sweet vignettes building towards the climax of this act. But again, it hinted at looming trouble ahead on yet another front. I do think the Duncans are doing a nice job of stringing us along without being too heavy-handed. But I did want to ask a question about the staging of this scene. How in the world did Don Richardson manage to get Guy Williams to stand with his back to the camera for almost an entire minute. I agree. It was jarring for regular viewers seeing Guy Williams' back. I was beginning to think his pants were split, you know, the way he never turned around. But then suddenly he does. You know, it was also odd how he completely forgets his earlier edicts. Because in Wish Upon a Star, he told everyone he didn't believe in something for nothing. But here, Smith has turned Verda into a basic slave, and John is cool with it. Yeah. Then again, she is pretty easy on the eyes, and even though she's a robot, she still looks pretty hot in that tied aluminum foil outfit. Remember, she's the only non-Robinson female on the entire planet, so what else can a married geologist do to get his rocks off? I don't know. Just saying. Here we go again, folks. <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, the audience is waiting for it now, so it's okay. Well, next we cut to an open clearing on the far edge of camp. Humming a pleasant tune and wearing an expression of sublime leisure, Dr. Smith fans himself with an oversized leaf as he relaxes on a natural stone settee, his bare feet soaking in a silver space-age footbath, while Verda... His newfound mechanical menial kneels in attendance before him. Suddenly, the melody is interrupted when Smith gasps. Mm-hmm. Oh, you made it too cold. Oh, that is easily adjusted. 
My left hand functions as a heating element. My right hand is a freezing coil. Spare me the scientific lectures, madam. Just warm it up. The attentive automaton hears and obeys. Twirling her fingers on her left hand above the pan does the trick. But Verda's need to please runs hot, and so does the water, which starts to boil. Ah, stop it at once, you ridiculous Peter! You're scolding me! Ah. <laughs> Switching hands quickly, That's better. she cools Smith's temper and the bath. What is that object? It's a flower, you silly thing. Now you can remove your hand. It's quite cool enough. A flower? We have no such object on our planet. Will you kindly remove your freezing element? I'm not an Eskimo, you know. It has great beauty of structure. I order you to stop this at once, you hear? No! Bolting upright, Smith glares down at his feet, now frozen solid in a block of simulated synthetic ice. Comically rolling his eyes at the disgraced domestic, he scorns. You don't know your right hand from your left. That was a classic bit of visual comedy, Kurt. But I did like the way we see Verda's character slowly evolving. Her robotic manner of speech was softening, and the way she got distracted from her prime directive of serving Smith by the beauty of that little flower made it seem like there's more to this android than meets the electric eye, don't you think? Uh, yeah, I, I want to agree with you, but that scene seemed forced to me. I mean, after all, if the water's about to freeze solid, most people are going to lift their feet out of it, right? You know? Sure. But, hey, I'll grant you this. It's so ridiculous that it is sort of funny, right? <laughs> Believable, <laughs> no, but amusing, yes. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm noticing too much, too, but that fake frozen ice was pretty weak. I don't know if you yeah. could tell. <laughs> And, uh, you know, if your foot's going to be in a frozen block of ice, the chances are you're going to also have some frostbite, you know, but hey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, next, an exasperated Dr. Smith struts into a clearing used by B9 as Will and Penny's classroom. Hot on his heels is Verda. Away from me, madam. Away. Will you stay away from me, you albatross? Plopping down on a stool, Dr. Smith glumly listens to the robot's history lecture as his doting cybernetic siren silently stands by. And so, financed by Queen Isabella of Spain, Columbus set sail across the uncharted ocean and in the year 1492 landed on a small island and thereby America was discovered. But Smith perks up when he thinks he's caught the ten-plated tutor in an error and saunters over to set the record straight. Yes? At last I've caught you in an error, you pedagogical pipsqueak. You've finally slipped a cog, have you? America was discovered in 1493, not 1492. Uh, Dr. Smithies... You stay out of this, my dear child. It's time your young mind were protected from the misinformation spewed by this ignominious ignoramus. Check your recall circuits. Verify. My information is correct. Indeed. At a blunder like that, I'm afraid I shall have to rewire you. Dr. Smith. Don't try to protect him, Will. It must be done. Rewiring is unnecessary. My information is correct. Nonsense. In 1493, Columbus sailed the deep blue sea. Remember? That is an incorrect quotation. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You dare contradict me? 
You are wrong. I propose checking the information. I propose a wager. A wager? Affirmative. If you are right, you may rewire me. If I am right, you will sit in the class and keep quiet. It will be a pleasure, you jangling junk heap. And whom do you propose as arbiter? The android. Very well. Does your programming include Earth history, my dear? My programming includes all history. Splendid. Now, before I put the question to you, I must establish your position. Who ordered you from the machine? That's not fair, Dr. Smith. It's merely clarification, my dear boy. Sit down. Who ordered you? You did. Yes, remember that. Now then, when did Christopher Columbus discover America? 1492. Would you repeat that? October 12th. 1492. Perfidious creature. You forget who brought you here. I am programmed to serve you. I am not programmed to lie. Bah! Proceed. Chastened, Dr. Smith sulks back to his stool as Verda moves closer to B9. You are a very interesting mechanism. Thank you. You are equipped with model 56 Turon computer, are you not? My computer is the best on Earth, analog and digital. That's too bad. But at least you're programmed for intergalactic history, are you not? Well, no, but... And obedient geometry, the calculus of Orion, the anti-gravity theory of Gemus. I can lift very heavy things. I'm sure you can. And I think you do quite well for one so primitive. But don't you think a teacher of children should have a more well-rounded education? B9 answers her by silently surrendering his pointer, then rolls out of the frame. Hmm. Well, it was another delightful comedy scene, Kurt, but I thought this one showed off the Duncan's deft touch with B9's dialogue. And adding to that were all the little torso turns and ear swivels that Bob May performed as the robot was being embarrassed by Verda. What did you think? Yeah, yeah, I liked its routine much better. It, mm-hmm. I wasn't rolling in the aisles, but it was believable and it was amusing. It surely was, yeah. Well, once he's departed, the Platinum Professor moves to the easel bearing a map of the Earth and begins her lecture. We shall begin by the exploration of the universe the first creature to leave his home and explore the uncharted skies, an adventure that parallels the voyage of your Columbus, but instead of ocean, he was faced with this. Then with a flourish, Verda waves her lesson stick in front of the board, which, much to the delight of the children, causes the Earth map to be replaced by an animated cosmic map in motion. As the stars and galaxies drift across the display, She tells the wide-eyed kids all about the alien explorer's history, his struggles, triumphs, and adventures. But Dr. Smith seems altogether disinterested by her elocution and comically struggles to stay awake. (laughs) You know, that was a rather expensive special effect, showing that map turn into an animated movie on the stars. Oh, it was, yeah. Yeah, they didn't cut directly to film. They matted it into the shot. 
So you saw Verda alongside of the movie playing where the map was. It's a costly and time-consuming map process. And, right. you know, just a little warning here, folks. You might want to just fast-forward past this thing because I, I kind of get into the weeds. This is, to me, this is very interesting. The animation process is pretty neat how they do this. It requires two large sheets of glass with stars painted on them filmed with what's called a multi-plane camera. Mm-hmm. One plane of glass just has all the stars over it representing the stars that surround us in our own galaxy, the Milky Way. And the other sheet has two spirals of stars painted on it, representing the two galaxies beyond our own galaxy. Mm. Now remember, there's nothing between galaxies except the black void and empty space. From Earth, we see these galaxies as, well, basically they're just bright blurs of light behind stars that are closer to us. Sure. But with a strong telescope, you often see them as spirals, which is what our Milky Way would look like if we were to swap perspectives. Mm -hmm. To create this effect on film, the camera films both sheets of glass at the same time, one on top of the other, but one will be moving a little faster, sliding beneath the other one. So that it gives you the illusion, you know, that depth. It's a great effect that we see all the time in real life and in classic cartoons where they use the same animation table in order sure. to get those objects on the horizon traveling at different speeds, the one closest to us versus the ones in the, the distant horizon. Now, unfortunately, this is lost in space. And they always have to do something wrong to drive the science nerds crazy and give people <laughs> like me something to bitch about. In this case, they had the spirals of the distant galaxies on the top frame of glass. And they had the stars that surround us in the neighboring Milky Way on the bottom sheet. They moved the sheets of glass at the correct speed. The galaxy spirals go slower than the neighboring stars, which is what you expect. But you can clearly see that the spirals are on top of the neighboring stars, which is the exact opposite of how it would really appear. Now, some of you might be thinking, hey, but wait. How can you see through to the second sheet of glass if everything but the stars is blotted out with black paint? That's a really good question. (laughs) Normally, they would have the landscape stacked in tiers. The trees would be in the foreground, the horizon behind that, and the sunset behind that. And there's nothing to block your view because it's just clear air passing by. But here, it's all black of space, right? Sure. So how do you get to see the second sheet of glass when all you have is a few little stars that are, you know, empty spots? The answer is they film it in negative. You know, they paint it in negative. They make the stars black. Right. And they keep the black of space empty. And then when they project it, they just show the negative. They don't show the actual film. So it works out really, really cool. It is. Uh, but, you know, it still drives me nuts that they get through <laughs> all that trouble and they had to get it a little bit wrong because in the Lost in Space tradition, there's always got to be a fly in the Irwin Allen ointment. <sighs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah. They spent all that money on it and got it reversed like that. That's so funny. Yeah. But Although, to be fair, it's also very possible and probably even probable <laughs> that they took that animation from something else, you know? Well, I was just going to mention this because I haven't confirmed this, but I'm almost positive mm-hmm. this animation was used previously. So it'd be another great example of recycling in a change of space. Yeah. When Will goes up into the craft, you know... uh, Which begs the question, was that original animation? Did they make that just for Lost in Space, or did they borrow that from somewhere else? They might have actually made that, because that was a great... uh, And and a big effect, as opposed to this, where it's just this miniature little square inside of a a map matted into the scene. Well, I admire that they did it, because it it added a great visual element, whether it was, you know, technically correct or not. But you contrast that to the way they did the android machine itself on the screen 
those are just like artist drawings that they <laughs> yes they, they didn't do a burn it at all in fact there was a note in the lost in space book from the uh, production guy who was saying yeah this will only take three or four you know burn ins to do to do these uh, display screens on the machine well that got nixed right away they yeah, went to the, yeah. to the cartoons basically the <laughs> yeah they just slipped it in there and they did quick cuts you know in camera edits that's all they did exactly no, that's great. It's funny. Yeah, that multiplane photography is pretty cool. And, and like you say, you see it all the time on you know high production cartoons and things like that. So yeah, I think Disney is the first people who really developed that. I think you're right. That's now, how cool. do we get back to Lost in Space after going off on that tangent? <laughs> Already in progress. <laughs> Well, across the way from the outdoor classroom, the camera cuts back to the ship, where Judy emerges from the airlock and eavesdrops on Verda's lesson from afar. Intrigued, she calls Mom out to observe their guest teaching the history of the universe, but wonders aloud if they should learn about Earth first. Smiling back gently, Maureen decides to do a little teaching herself and wisely answers that, no, perhaps Verda's right, after all, the Earth is a small place and very far away. This is the world in which the children are growing up. Perhaps they should learn about this place first. The heartfelt moment ends as mother and daughter wordlessly share knowing smiles. Hmm. Yeah, that was a sweet way to conclude that scene, Kurt. And I'm really enjoying these extra moments that the other cast members are getting in this episode. And it really shows you what they can do when given the chance. I'm sure you noticed that when they showed Verda from afar, they strategically placed a large rectangular rock to block the view of the map, yeah. just so they wouldn't have to show any more of that expensive effect that is so Irwin. You know? <laughs> but I also got a big charge out of the way that Verda recites the history of the first space exploration. She says... In the 6,000th year of his planet's history, he developed a spacecraft which everyone said would never escape the pull of their planet. They developed spaceflight in just 6,000 years of existence? Mm. I mean, for Earth, it took our planet's history four and a half billion years just to work its way up to humans. And then it took us another <laughs> six million years to devise a simple eternal combustion engine. Now, I don't know about these aliens, but I'm beginning to feel a serious inferiority complex right about now. How about you? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's amazing. I hadn't even put that together. That's funny. The 6,000th year. <gasps> wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, later that night, with the act reaching a crescendo, we're back by the android machine, where a fuming Dr. Smith vents his frustrations to the robot. New world indeed, the presumption of that creature, not only to question my judgment, but to usurp a position which does not belong to her. She embarrassed me. She took my pointer. Indeed she did. For once, my bosom companion, I find that we can agree on something. I can hardly wait until we have enough fuel to take off from here and leave that mechanized maidservant behind. <laughs> but Smith's hopes are dashed when B-9 computes the Robinsons are unlikely to leave Verda behind. And if they do take her along, that will take more fuel. There's no question about it. We must dispose of the creature. What is your plan? It's quite elementary. This machine brought her here. It can also take her back. Smith orders his bosom buddy to scan the alien apparatus, but is vexed when the robot admits the machine's circuits are beyond his technical capabilities. Taking matters into his own hands, 
the impulsive interloper foolishly flips on the machine, then flips out when a weird insect-like alien head flashes on the screen. Oh dear. Ordering B9 to pull the plug before the creature materializes, the relieved rascal sighs. Oh, that was indeed a close call. I see that we shall have to make a deeper study of this machine before we try that again. However, it does give me an idea. What kind of idea? Silence, you bellicose pumpkin. Come along, and I'll show you. Kurt, I guess we should be glad Smith listened this time when B9 said, do not touch the red button. (laughs) But part of me was actually hoping to see that wasp-faced monster pop out of the machine. How about you? Number two, (laughs) it's time to release the ginormous murder hornet. (laughs) I'm afraid we only have sea bass, Dr. Evil. (laughs) But they're ill-tempered. That's funny. No, but I would have liked to see that wasp-faced monster is a lot scarier than the one we get, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. You know, it's funny how we're all like instinctively terrified of wasps. Mm. I remember once I was going down a stairwell and I heard the buzz of a wasp and I almost like jumped all the way down to the bottom of landing. And all it was was the Venetian blind blowing in the wind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, a, wow. The sa- yeah, I think it's something almost instinctual. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like the, the image of a snake. Well, most people are <laughs> <laughs> have their defense, their flight or flight instinct triggered by... You mean those who don't have their own pet boa constrictor? Yes. Yes, I know. <laughs> Most people have that uh, triggered, but uh, not Uncle Kurt. Uh-uh-uh. Someone's got to love the snakes, right? My darling Clarice. <laughs> well, next we dissolve to a close-up of Professor Robinson's homespun warning sign, which reads... Danger, stay clear of this area. The camera tracks along as our bosom companions enter the off-limits area. When the robot halts to warn of danger. Warning, warning, that sign says danger area. But Dr. Smith brushes off the nervous Nitty's concerns and instead hunts for flowers, which he proceeds to reposition along a path near to the entrance of the creature cavern. Curious, B9 inquires. Why are you moving the plants around? If you had any perception at all, you'd realize that the android is obviously not going to leave us voluntarily. We must show her that she has not come to a paradise. In other words, we must frighten her. Frighten her? Yes, indeed. A classic approach to the problem, if I do say so myself. But as Dr. Smith cluelessly prattles on about his well-oiled scheme, we can see over his shoulder a grisly green monster with bulging blood-red eyes creeping out of the shadows behind him. Uh-oh. She will see this lovely flower, and knowing that the children are not permitted into the cave... But when the robot senses... Danger! 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 Dr. Smith danger, turns danger. and screams in horror at the hideous sight. <laughs> collapsing helplessly onto the sandy soil. Oh, dear. 
Well, here it is, Kurt. <laughs> We're only given a brief look at this heretofore unseen cave creature. But despite sporting the same shoe size as the bog monster, it did look like a new addition to the Lost in Space monster menagerie. What did you think? Well, it is interesting. I'll grant you that. It has a large Mardi Gras type head that reminds me <laughs> of the big pinata. And the body has flaps of green fabric stuck all over it. It has red glowing eyes that look pretty cool, even though they don't really make sense because his eyes only really glow at nighttime when they're reflecting a light that's coming from elsewhere. But hey, you know, that's not the most ridiculous part of the costume because the most ridiculous part has got to be the tongue. Did you notice that? It was supposed to be this long, tubular, insect-type tongue, but it looked more like a 10-inch stick of raspberry licorice hanging from its mouth. In fact, I think we should call him the Twizzle Monster. The Twizzle Monster. That's funny. Yeah. Well, I like those red eyes. I mean, from a distance at first until you could see the texture, I almost thought he looked like Gumby or something something Uh like that, you know. Yeah, he did. But, you know, in the script the Duncans wrote, they described the monsters a lot scarier, of course. And one of the features that they specifically pointed out was it was supposed to have flaming phlegm spitting from that hideous mouth. But, of course, for budgetary reasons, that was cut. (laughs) That would have been cool to see. I'm not sure how they could have pulled that off, but that was a fun idea, I think. It must have been very demoralizing how writers would always envision these great scenes in Lost in Space, and they always just get completely (laughs) watered down with a fire hose, you know? Oh, man. Well, with Dr. Smith at the mercy of this ghoulish gremlin, it's anyone's guess how this turns out. But we'll have to wait until after station identification to see what happens next. Lost in Space will continue after station identification. This is CBS. When we return from the break to start Act 2, the robot frantically waves his arms, warning of danger, as the menacing green goblin closes in on a helpless Dr. Smith. Oh dear. But before the monster can sink its fangs into the comatose coward, B-9 gallantly rushes forward, firing a powerful electric charge, which drives the mossy monstrosity back into the bowels of its grisly lair. Danger! Danger! With a little prodding from the robot, Dr. Smith stirs from his stupor. Oh, it was horrible. Horrible. Yes. It's a good thing I had the presence of mind to freeze. Otherwise, that dreadful creature would have certainly devoured me on the spot. Are you all right? Of course I'm all right. Help me up. Oh. Can you walk? Spare me the insulting innuendos, you floundering flunky. My recuperative powers are extraordinary. After a good night's sleep, I shall be as fit as a fiddle. If you can walk, I suggest we do so. The creature might return at any minute. Of course I can walk. But after only a step, it's Smith who comically flounders right back onto B9 for support. (laughs) Regaining his poise, the flunky physician finishes the scene with the last word. You pushed me. 
Kurt, that was a funny ending to a moment of terror for Dr. Smith. But I thought it was interesting that after he woke up, Smith's first question to B9 was, did you kill him? Which made me think, the only time I can remember B9 actually destroying a monster was at the beginning of The Keeper Part 2, when he vaporized that bat beast that was attacking Dr. Smith. In fact, lately, he's been a little slow on the trigger altogether. So I guess it was good at least he stunned this creature. Any theories on this? Yeah, well, you know, it's the robot that doesn't really kill the creature. I, apparently, he doesn't enjoy murdering monsters the same way that Professor Robinson and company do every chance <laughs> they get. I mean, you know, I get it that you want to protect your family from threats, but teaching them how to avoid dangerous animals would be a lot easier than trying to wipe out all native wildlife, it would seem to me. <laughs> you know, you mentioned snakes earlier, and this reminds me of a... A situation that happened here in Tallahassee that I'll never forget, and it involved a giant rattlesnake. Did I ever tell you about this? This isn't Land of the Giants rattlesnake, but almost. We're talking about a 10-foot-long rattlesnake. Wow. No, I don't remember that. Yeah, I I was hiking over by Lake Lafayette. Okay, and then I just finished the the hike around the lake, and as I'm leaving, there's these cars that are stacked up at the road, and there's something laying across the road, Mm. and this black lady says, "Did you see it? Did you see that was out there in the in the road, the big snake?" And I go, "No, what what is it?" And it's this ten foot long rattlesnake. Now they say they only get to be eight feet. That's the largest one supposedly on record, but this one was definitely bigger than that because that boa I told you about. He's eight feet, so I know eight feet. Yeah. This thing was bigger than that, and it was laying right across that road. Wow. Its head was like the size of my sneaker. Wow. And it was completely, you know, snakes normally like serpentine. This guy was just a straight line, and they had these little scales underneath that they used to crawl if they want to. It's very slow, but that's what he's doing. He's crawling across the road, and he was going straight towards his big housing project. (laughs) I'm going... That's not going to be too cool. No. So I drag out this long limb from the the woods there, which is what surrounds the lake, and I use it to kind of brush the snake back and turn it around and direct it back into the forest. And the thing is that that snake turned around and it went, but it wasn't scared at all. It it looked at me with the most bored expression. (laughs) I thought... This thing is some serious menace. You know, it's not even yeah. scared of humans. And uh, Yeah, he definitely feels like he's the top of the food chain in that situation, right? Oh, wow. I so wish I had my phone then because this guy, oh. he was a record breaker. Yeah. I, if he wasn't 10 feet, he was 9'11", for sure. Yeah. So it would have been an Eastern Diamondback or what, do you know what kind Yes, it was a Diamondback. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. And they're beautiful snakes. I mean, not only do they have that cool heart-shaped head, yeah. but they, they got that wonderful design down their back and the scales on them, yes. they kind, they're not smooth. They're kind of like jagged upward, they're like a horn toad, right. you know? They've got a texture to them. Yeah, they're three-dimensional. They're not flat and smooth like you're talking about. I wouldn't want to get bitten by one, but other than that, they'd be a cool pet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, other than that. uh, And you didn't even get his rattle to rattle at all? He was totally calm? No, he didn't leave in a hurry. He just sauntered off as if like, okay, well, you know, I'll just come back when it's dark, you know? (laughs) Jeez, wow. Yeah, well, I'll have to tell you about my dad and his best friend in college. They used to go catch specifically poisonous snakes down in Florida, not where you are in Tallahassee, further south. You know, they all kinds, copperheads, water moccasins, rattlesnakes. It was mostly water moccasins, and they would sell them 
to the Ross Allen snake farm down there in Florida, if you remember uh-huh. that, because he had yeah. the whole bit where they were milking the snakes to get the venom, and then they could produce the uh, the anti-venom or whatever for it. So I do have some pictures of some of the snakes my dad caught. I, I'll have to share those with you sometimes. But- you know, you actually mentioned that to me once before, and uh, what I thought was so cool about it was, for me, I like to be able to say, you know, I spent some time working on a farm, because it's sort of like this forgotten, sure. you know, heir of America. Yeah, yeah. But your dad can honestly tell people that he was a a poisonous snake wrangler. I mean, how many people could say that? I know. Well, he did a lot of crazy stuff when he was younger, so maybe that's where I get it from. But uh, I always love those stories. I'm not as fond of snakes as he is. I'm not really super frightened of them, but I've never had the urge to collect them like you did or even just <laughs> capture them and sell them. But he said it made good money. I mean, it paid for him to go to college the next semester. So that's a pretty neat story, I think. Yeah. You know, because I went to that Ross Island reptile farm. Is it still in existence? I don't even know. No, I mean, I don't know. But when I was a kid, I went yeah. there. And it's kind of weird in the six degree of separation idea to think think that some of those snakes in that room were caught by your dad. Could have been, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Could have been. And they had this giant glass room that you could look in from the outside and see the guy yeah. as he would go in there with what was basically like a uh, a golf putter and, you know, brush the snakes aside as he walked <laughs> through this room full of, of rattlesnakes and moccasins. It was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I never got to go to Ross Allen. I did go to Gatorland down in Orlando, if you ever went down there. That was a big alligator farm. Uh, that was before Disney World came and took over all the uh, entertainment stuff in Florida. You had those like attractions. Yeah. That's cool. And I think I also told you then that the highlight of the show was when they would reach into this pond with what looked like an ice thong, one of those big hooks. Right. And they'd pull up the top of the shell of this giant alligator snapping turtle i mean oh, yeah. as big as your dinner table that's how big a shell was 500 and something pounds or something it was huge uh, and that thing was wow from then on it's like i was no longer scared of swimming in the ocean from sharks i was terrified of swimming in lakes wow from these freshwater alligator snapping turtles <laughs> just waiting for someone's nice little fleshy foot to come near oh yeah that's what they eat they go after swans and ducks they just go up and they snap them in half and they eat them yes and they also yeah. eat fish but they go after anything that's foolish enough not to know that they exist in those lakes he's been trained only to eat the feet of unsuspecting <laughs> tourists from north of the mason dixon line so please wait in our waiting pools <laughs> oh, exactly that's great that's funny Well, next morning, we're back outside the ship as the men are finishing a tasty egg and sautéed mushroom breakfast prepared by Mrs. Robinson. Right on cue, Dr. Smith strides down the boarding ramp, but looking far from fit as a fiddle. When Maureen sympathetically asks the pale-faced pretender if he's feeling all right, he plays for more pity. Bless you for your concern, dear lady. You see, I had a very restless night. My mind was so filled with how I could better serve my fellow castaways (laughs) that I couldn't sleep. (laughs) But never one to shirk when duty calls, Smith refortifies himself with breakfast, while John and the Major head out to actually serve their fellow castaways, back at the drill site. After they're gone, Smith asks Maureen where his creation Verda is and she cheerfully informs the munching miscreants that the girls are putting her through a transformation. Transformation, indeed. She can only go from dismal to disaster. Kurt, it was 
typical for Smith to milk for sympathy when asked why he looked ill. But were you surprised that he failed to mention almost becoming a midnight snack for that green ghoul back at the cave? You know, you'd think they'd want to know that. Well, yeah, but see, he's keeping that encounter secret to use that monster in another scheme, which we'll see unfold here in just a little bit. (laughs) So for now, it's just our little secret. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, next we cut inside a stateroom down on the lower deck, where Judy and Penny attempt a fabulous makeover on Verda, who's compliantly seated between them. How does it look? Fine, just fine. It is unwise to alter my specifications. We're not altering your specifications. We're just dressing them up a little. Will my master be appreciative? Your master? Dr. Smith. Oh, I'm not sure he'll ever be appreciative of anyone, but I think you look nice. Look nice? Haven't you ever seen yourself? The appearance is not important. It is the programming which counts. This is a mirror. You can see the reflection of yourself in it. That way you know how you look. That is my exterior. (laughs) That's a nice way of putting it. Yes, that's how you look. If it were not known that I am an android, I might be taken for one of you. You are one of us, Verda. But the kind words inadvertently break her trance. Although she may appear like them, Verda reminds us she's only a manufactured machine and poignantly underscores the point by noting that her value is 100 philostros. Moving past the awkwardness, the girls escort her topside to surprise the others. And although Verda appears a little different outside, inside, she's experiencing a remarkable transformation indeed. Wow. You know, Kurt, I liked that little touching moment a lot, and it did make me think, if fuel is short and the Robinsons must choose between taking Verda or Smith... My money's on Verda. At least she was created to be useful. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. And and you know what? This isn't Sophie's choice. You know, it's Professor Robinson's choice. He should have at least the logic to know, for the sake of your family, for the sake of your sanity, hell, for the sake of all humanity, leave Smith behind. <laughs> oh, please, please. That's so funny. Well, cutting back outside, Dr. Smith ends his breakfast and compliments Madame on the splendid repast. Springing from the table, the galvanized gourmet traipses back up the ramp, but is intercepted halfway when a beaming Judy and Penny emerge with their surprise in tow. Exchanging good mornings, Mrs. Robinson compliments. Why, Verda, how nice you look. It is not my function to look nice. Of course it isn't your function. You're an android after all. Oh, Dr. Smith, please. Verda, won't you sit down and have some breakfast with us? Androids do not eat, my dear lady. They merely take on fuel. Now, Verda, I wish to have a little talk with you concerning your future. That way, my dear. As Smith ushers Verda away, Maureen admits... You know, she doesn't look any different at all to me. Well, we tried, Mother. (laughs) 
You know, Kurt, I have a feeling that Maureen, like my mother, grew up in Dixie because it's a real Southern living tradition that good manners means giving over-the-top compliments all the time. And that was a big cultural adjustment for my Yankee wife, Lisa. I had to teach her to overdo it when talking to my mother. Otherwise, if she didn't, I'd get quizzed. You know, I don't think Lisa liked our dinner tonight. (laughs) Mama, she cleaned her plate and said she enjoyed it. I know, but that's all she said. (laughs) That was a real hard transition for Lisa, I got to tell you. Yeah, in the South, being polite is just normal. It's expected, and it means nothing at all. But Yankees, like Brooklynite Dr. Smith, it's actually a red flag, and it means the daggers are being drawn. (laughs) If he says something that sounds pleasant, like, I wish I'd have a little talk with you concerning your future. Watch out, because that means you don't have a future. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's like red flashing, warning, warning, danger. Yeah, that's true. That's really what it means, although it doesn't always mean daggers. A lot of times being nice just means they want something, like they want money or they want you to buy something or they're trying to get you to go in an alley where they can mug you. (laughs) Sure, that's crazy. Well, some distance away, Dr. Smith escorts Verda into a clearing as his ponderous plumber B9 attends to Dr. Smith's incredible new hydraulic system, which he boasts will extract pure water from solid rock. The Rube Goldberg contraption of pipes, valves, and garden spigots, along with a couple of ubiquitous control boxes thrown in for good measure, is perched on top of a large magenta and lime-colored boulder. The wacky waterworks captures Verda's interest, and she starts to work on it, as Smith begins to work on her. Claiming to feel responsible for her welfare, Smith cautions the preoccupied pretty that unfortunately, she's come onto a hostile, threatening planet, and for her own safety, insists she arrange to return from whence she came. Although she's equipped with a fear factor self-preservation circuit, Dr. Smith senses he's not getting through and tries a different tact. Now, since you've taken over the duties of teacher in our little community, you will undoubtedly be taking the children on a nature walk, will you not, to acquaint them with the flora and the fauna of this planet? Yes. Then you will surely encounter one of the many loathsome creatures which abound here. And I'm afraid, my dear, that you're simply not equipped to cope with them. No? I must insist that you go back to wherever it is you came from. But instead of responding to her master's dire warnings, Verda proudly glows. I have the solution for your water problem, Dr. Smith. You do. The android answers by switching the system on, releasing a large gush of pure Perrier for Dr. Smith's second foot bath of the day. Grimacing, he slowly pours out his waterlogged boot. Then scorns. You've done it again, madam. Then storms off. <laughs> Come on, you ninny! Leaving the downcast dame alone in her shame. Kurt, I was a little confused with Smith's approach. At first, he seemed to be trying to convince Verda to go back on her own. But then, it seemed like he was just setting her up for a fright from that moss monster. How did you compute it? 
Well, I believe they were suggesting that Smith was trying to scare off, and if that didn't work, he was preparing to move on to Plan B, the Here Come the Monsters routine. But the message seemed as confusing as that mess of pipes that was supposed to extract water from rocks that was in front of them. <laughs> yeah. Because they were also telegraphing the bit about the self-preservation circuit right. and trying to insert another comedy routine. And it was just too much to take in right. in that short little exchange. So I thought the scene was another fumble, but not one bad enough to cost them the game. It also seemed odd that she figured out a way to extract water from solid rock. And yeah, I guess if you filled up my boot with water, I'd get a little bit miffed too. But I'd also be delighted that you just found out a way to provide us an endless source of water on this planet, right? <laughs> well, it is one of the things I keep running out of, either food yeah. or water all the time. So yeah, I would be, <laughs> I'd kind of be. Is the prime ingredient, you know, first it's air and then second it's water, you know? Yeah. And then food comes third. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. That's a good point. Well, next, Dr. Smith and the robot have returned to the scene of the crime, the android machine. Scrutinizing the inscrutable instrument's myriad of controls, Smith wonders aloud, Hmm, I wonder what would happen if I pressed two buttons at once. I do not know. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, I always say. Activated. The machine's pinwheels flash and spin, then suddenly freeze as the image of a 17th century cavalier's costume pops on the screen. Hmm. We've struck gold. Indeed we have. Have you found a way to return the android? That can wait, you foolish fop. I just realized that this is a galactic mail-order machine. By pressing the proper combination of buttons, I could have anything I want in the universe. I'll think about that later. For the nonce, I shall contemplate a new wardrobe. Sartorial elegance has always been one of my strong points. Mulling over the suit on the screen, Smith muses aloud. This is interesting. It's very interesting. (laughs) That was funny, Kurt. But did it surprise you that Smith could be so easily diverted from his ditch verta scheme? By the prospect of a new suit of clothes, at least the robot seemed to be still on point. <laughs> that flamboyant costume was the latest <laughs> shiny object to distract Smith. He'll chase after that like a ball-crazy dog. It might be fancy clothes or gourmet food or mm. diamonds or whatever. That's just how he is. I did think it was unintentionally funny how Smith confirms they are going on a nature walk to acquaint them with the flora and fauna of this planet, when that's the one thing she has acknowledged knowing nothing about. She specifically said she had never seen a flower before. She was fascinated about it. In fact, she froze Smith's feet in a solid block of ice because of it. Mm -hmm. Of course, we're supposed to just forget about all those details, but not on Alpha Control, your obsessive compulsive headquarters for all things Erwin. Oh, ain't that the truth? That's right. She did specifically say, I've never seen a flower before. (laughs) Yeah, that was the only thing. The only thing that she knew all the history of the universe, but she'd never known anything about flowers. Crazy. Well, next we're tagging along as Verda, moving at a brisk pace, leads Will and Penny on that foreshadowed nature walk. Suddenly, the diligent docent halts in front of a large rock and comments on some unseen object of beauty. 
Realizing they can't see the microscopic miracles her android eyes do, Verda passes her hand over the spot in question, and then, with a familiar electronic pop, a beautiful bouquet of posies materialize into view. The kids are astonished by her magic, but Verda is equally fascinated by their laughter, teaching her pupils that the beauty of nature must be preserved as is. She waves her hand again, returning the flowers to their original size. Gazing back at the children's delighted smiles, she asks if all humans laugh. At one time or another, says Penny, but when she asks why they laugh, the roles reverse, and the students become the teachers, explaining that they laugh because something's funny or just because they're happy. Unable to compute that concept, Verda listens intently as her tutors describe happiness as the way you feel inside when you like yourself or when you're with someone you like very much. Tilting her head, the android declares, "Then I am happy." Then stumps her teachers by asking, "Which muscles do you move to laugh?" The children answer from the heart. They don't know. It just pops out. Touching her cheeks in wonder, Verda turns and leads her little class on their way. Wow, that was another touching scene, Kurt. But I did think it was funny that Will, of all people, was so impressed with Verda's magic act when just two episodes ago he was doing the exact same trick with the same sound effect and music cues to boot yeah. back in Space Circus. <laughs> yeah, that's a good catch, actually. I had completely forgotten that continuity faux pas, just as we're all supposed to do and forget everything that's happened in every previous episode. Mm-hmm. Like that poor little puppy that the family must have cannibalized to make stew out of from uh-huh. one of our dogs is missing, you know? <laughs> one moment they love it, the next moment they've forgotten it. Yeah. We should call this show Lost in Memories, you know? Or Husker-Doo, the Alzheimer's project how quickly we're supposed to forget everything is just amazing but now that you brought it up what will did was even more miraculous than what verda did because he created a living frog although a highly poisonous one out of nothing while verda only increases the size of an existing plant and then made it small again so yeah he should be more like me in there done that you know (laughs) that's great Well, next... It is impossible. The hat cannot be removed. We're back again at the android machine, where Dr. Smith, dressed in Three Musketeers garb, bullies B9 for help as he struggles in vain to remove his foppish fedora. When Verda and the children appear, all three spontaneously laugh at the distressed dandy's absurd appearance and predicament. Flustered, Smith calls for order. Will you stop laughing? Then asks for the android's help. Unfortunately for him, the mechanized matron knows nothing of the machine. Oh, fiddly Vexed, Smith pivots. Verda, I suggest you get on with your nature walk and take that path over there. But that's off limits to us, Dr. Smith. Nonsense, my boy. You have a governess after all, an android with apparently unlimited powers in most areas. And you'll find some lovely flowers on that path. The children still seem unsure, 
But when Verda says it's all right, the threesome blissfully scramble along out of the area. Have a nice walk. But Dr. Smith, they will be in extreme danger. I will go with them. You will do nothing of the sort. But. But me no but, simple Simon, that's an order. What a ridiculous position to be in. I need you to help me work this machine. I cannot and I will not spend the rest of my existence clad in this ridiculous rigmarole. Yeah, that was funny. I mean, even Verda laughed, which was another nice little nod to her evolution. But I was surprised how B9 was so easily put off by Smith from going after the kids when he knew they would be in extreme danger. What gives, Kurt? Well, uh, B9's a computer, so let's look at it logically. The three rules of robots are, a robot may not injure a human being or allow a human to come to harm. Well, the kids are in danger, so that means B9 should have stopped their trip into the cave. Right. But the second robotic law states that a robot must obey orders unless they are in conflict with law number one. Smith ordered him not to go to the cave, so he must obey. But... That order is in conflict with rule number one, so B9 should not obey. Uh. However, the third rule states a robot must protect its own existence as long as those actions do not conflict <laughs> with either the first or the second law. Okay, going to the cave could get B9 destroyed, so no, he should not go. Except not going is in conflict with rule number two, so he should go. Except going is also in conflict with Smith's direct order, so he should not go again. Wow, this is getting way too complicated so maybe that's your answer this does not compute (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's crazy it is a conundrum isn't it i need a whiteboard and some markers here to figure the the hierarchy in this situation Uh. well next with the act nearing a climax the sinister music signals danger as plainly as John's warning sign to stay clear of the ghastly gargantuous lair. The children appear skittish, but Verna seems oddly unaware of the looming peril as she fixates on the beautiful flowers Dr. Smith set out as bait. Oh boy. Will sensibly says they better get back, but Verda blithely assures them they're quite safe there. Henny nervously repeats Dad's caution about a creature nearby and worriedly begs Verda to stay clear. But wanting to study one last blossom, the foolhardy Fimbot impetuously moves closer to the entrance of the cave. Uh-oh. Just then, we can hear, <laughs> then see, the Viridian varmint lumbering out of the shadows behind the unsuspecting android. Spinning around, she's stunned by the sight of the hideous Hulk, but recovers her wits to instinctively move between the beast and the slack-jawed children, who she orders to run for their lives. Turning back, the helpless heroine's face is filled with genuine terror as the menacing monster slowly moves in for the kill. Oh, dear. Wow. That's one way to get out of school early, Kurt. Have a monster assault your teacher. Mm -hmm. But did you think it was odd that with all of her advanced technology and programming, 
Verda seemed so clueless that there could be a real threat from inside that cave? Well, you know, sometimes old is gold. Verna may be younger and look more human, but training in that roly-poly, pot-bellied stove body of B9 for the curvy female form of Verda, it came <laughs> at a cost. She no longer has the accordion arms that the old-style B9 has, and that's where the robot's danger, danger sensors are concealed. So this is one time when primitive technology is superior. Ah, touche. I didn't think about that, but that's right. There's his, <laughs> those are his warning sensors, aren't they? Yeah, they, she apparently traded those in for the heating element and the cooling element. <laughs> Not a good choice. <laughs> wow. Well, let's hope that loathsome creature is on an alloy-free diet, Kurt. But I guess we'll have to wait until after the commercial to find out if Salsa Verda is next on the menu. Oh, dear. Lost in Space, brought to you by... Meet Mr. Clean, Procter & Gamble's new all-purpose liquid cleaner. Mr. Clean gets rid of dirt and grime and grease in just a minute. Mr. Clean will clean your whole house and everything that's in it. Floors, doors, walls, halls, white sidewall, tires, and old golf balls. Sink, stoves, bathtubs, he'll do. He'll even help clean laundry, too. Mr. Clean gets rid of dirt and grime and grease in just a minute. Mr. Clean will clean your whole house and everything that's in it. Can he clean a kitchen sink? Quicker than a wink. Can he clean a window sash? Faster than a flash. Can he clean a dirty mirror? He'll make it bright and clearer. Can he clean a diamond ring? Mr. Clean cleans anything. Mr. Clean gets rid of dirt and grime and grease in just a minute. Mr. Clean will clean your whole house and everything that's in it. Mr. Clean, Mr. Clean, Mr. Clean. When we return from the break to start Act 3, Penny and Will frantically race into the drill site to warn Dad and Don that the monsters got Miss Verda. Uh-oh. The men drop everything, grab their laser rifles, and dash off to the rescue in a flash. Cutting back to the entrance of the vine-covered cavern, it looks like it's curtains for the petrified pretty because that bug-eyed beast is mere inches away from finishing her off. Oh dear. But just then, Professor Robinson bolts into view and shouts for the vulnerable vixen to stand back, giving him a clean shot to fire a quick laser blast, which vaporizes the scaly scalawag into oblivion. With the danger over, our castaways move in to make sure Verda is all right. John listens as the children describe how she acted to save them from the frightful freak just in the nick of time. It's a surprising revelation to the professor, and even more so to Verda. She's programmed for self-preservation only, so why was she willing to sacrifice herself? Hmm. Mystified, John says he can't answer that, but he's very grateful for what she did. Turning back to his erstwhile heirs, Professor Robinson asks, didn't you know this place was off limits? Shrugging, Penny says, Dr. Smith said it'd be all right. (laughs) Dad lets that pass, then asks Verda again if she's really all right. Taking stock of herself, she reports her circuits are undamaged 
and her power pack is functioning normally. Pausing to compose herself, she soberly answers, Yes, she's all right, and thanks them very much before quietly exiting the frame. Hmm. You know, Kurt, it seems like it's finally dawning on Verda that she's exceeding her programming. But were you surprised that, <laughs> I think I know the answer to this one, that Quick Draw McJohn didn't bother to try the stun setting and instead use the disintegration ray on that poor lumbering moss monster? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you kidding? The way these guys love to kill monsters, I would have been shocked if they had spared it. His fate was sealed the moment his Twizzle Monster name appeared on the cast call list. May forever rest in reruns. Uh. Hey. <laughs> That'll be the day. Shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah. That's John's motto. And of course, now you saw it was just a quick cut edit, too, so we didn't yeah. even get any good pyrotechs. No. Well, you know, originally, that lumbering beast was described as aggressively lunging for Verda and the kids, but a note from CVS, not to make the creature look too menacing, must have resulted in Don Richardson telling Dawson Palmer to stand as still as a statue. So Professor Robinson couldn't miss. He was so slow moving. I mean, Verda could have run away too. So I don't know why she had to sit there. Yeah. (laughs) But that was kind of funny, I thought. Yeah, I also think the enlarged head gives the illusion that the monster itself is small. You know, I think big heads make the body look small. And that makes it just kind of look comical. So I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it definitely downsized the threat factor. Definitely. Mm. Meanwhile, back at the Milky Way mail order machine, our crabby cavalier glumly grouses to his defective detective B9 over their failure to return Smith's molting costume. After scanning the kooky contraption's components, the robot forms a sequestral theory. If pushing two buttons provides merchandise, perhaps pressing three buttons will remove it. Hmm. It might be worth a try. Obviously, I have nothing to lose. So given the go, B9 flips three switches on the device's control console. Uh, Point of order, point of order. You finally slipped a cog, have you? The robot said pushing three buttons should do it. But after me pushing my repay button five or six times, I can assure you that he only threw two switches upward. Because when they show a close-up shot, you can see which ones he flipped. So take Uh, that, Mr. Blu-ray man. Wow. Great catch. Yeah. That's some good. (laughs) You are not a defective detective, sir. (laughs) Bravo. Bravo. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Again. They weren't going to reshoot a scene like that just to (laughs) fix that little continuity error. But that's that's the problem when you start throwing levers instead of pressing buttons. You've got the evidence right there on tape. Yes. That's crazy. Well, as soon as the machine's psychedelic spirals begin to whir, a computerized voice blares. Your complaint has been received. Stand by. Stand by. Uh Uh-oh. Panicked. Dr. Smith leaps to his feet and cowers by the edge of the alien apparatus. What have you gotten me into now? (laughs) Abruptly, the sky flashes with powerful bolts of high-frequency cosmic radiation, accompanied by the sound of retro-rockets firing. Uh Uh-oh. 
Waving his accordion arms, B-9 warns that an alien spacecraft is approaching to land. What? <laughs> Before the dazed doctor can react, the area is thunderstruck by a massive flash powder explosion. When the smoke finally clears, we're treated to a bizarre, unexpected spectacle that's left even Dr. Smith speechless. Because instead of a saucer, missile, or even a silver capsule-shaped vessel, this crazy craft appears to be an ornate early 20th century elevator car, crowned by a pulsating power coupling and resting on our old friend, the flashing fusion core. Painted gold (laughs) to match the filigree on the elevator's cage. (laughs) And please don't bother asking how the two occupants were able to survive their trip through the vacuum of space in that (laughs) open-air cosmic conveyance because we're never told. Just go with the flow, folks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Speaking of that pair of occupants, they seem to be as out of place as the spacecraft. As the door glides open, the shorter, officious-looking man with slicked-back graying hair and a pencil mustache emerges, elegantly dressed in cutaway tails, vest, and ascot over formal, gray-striped trousers, and sporting a pink carnation on his well-pressed lapel. The distinguished visitor pauses to receive a report from his brutish, bald lackey, who's squeezed into a beige-green double-breasted jacket over tan trousers. Mr. Clean advises his boss that they've arrived at the 4,823rd level of the three millionth galaxy. <laughs> Whatever that means. Wow. Irked, the man in charge comically warns his overgrown underling with a couple of mouth pops <laughs> to shh, use the code. It gets better results. Ah. Uh. The use of that popping sound is rather interesting. They call it a code, remember? Right. When I first saw it, I thought to myself, Self, they're adding this just for comic value. But the more I watched, the more I realized it served a second function as well. It allows them to edit out all sorts of unnecessary dialogue because it's an abbreviated code that the guard understands. So all he has to do is... (laughs) And we fill in the blanks. Right. It's very efficient, isn't it? That's a neat yeah. neat little trick. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, the guard is going to do the pop, too, but it's so obvious that they just edited in the sound effect for him because the hand doesn't quite match when it, <laughs> the uh-huh. sound effect is going on. So I did catch that little thing, but you're ahead of me. I think you've got me beat three to one now on catching little bloopers here. And Mr. Clean can't even do a mouth pop. That's pretty <laughs> pathetic. <laughs> I love it. Well, gliding down from his kooky craft, the curious official wears a well-practiced grin and clicks his heels as he introduces himself in a thick Viennese accent. Sandish is the name. <clears throat> Complaint manager for the Celestial Department Stores, Area 17. Despite complimenting his customer on his wise choice of material and fit, Zumdish's claims to stand behind their merchandise 100% still leaves Dr. Smith displeased with the garments and preferring to have his own clothes back. Vexed, the miffed manager squints back a forced smile, 
then waltzes over to what he describes as one of the older, outmoded vending machines, but adds with a flourish that it should still do the trick. <laughs> and sure enough, with a flip of the switch and a quick blast of flash powder, Dr. Smith's foray into sartorial splendor is replaced with his familiar brown velour space fatigues. No, thank you, sir. Mr. Zomdish, now that you're here, I should like to register another complaint, a matter I would like handled immediately. And what is that? Some time ago, I ordered an android. A most peculiar creature appeared with silver skin. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Verda model, 10165A. You know about her? Of course. As a matter of fact, when the credit department heard I was coming here, they asked me to bring the bill along. Payment is due, you know, and collections are rather difficult from this planet. Did you say a bill? I have it right here. Comically fumbling through his pockets for the invoice, the fidgeting fuss finally produces the proper paper, which Smith grabs, but it's instantly snatched back by Zumdish, who informs the deadbeat doctor. Ordinarily, this model sells for 100 salastros, but this week only she has been reduced to 89.95. Now, if you prefer, you can pay one third down and the rest in. I do not propose to pay for her at all. You must be aware, sir. Sales merchandise cannot be returned. We like to be liberal with our customers, but... Uh, I have no intention of paying you one red cent, or whatever your currency happens to be. That is... Very unfortunate, sir. Very unfortunate indeed. Using the code, Zumdish signals his hairless hatchet man to put the squeeze on Dr. Smith. Reeling under the high-pressure sales job, the frightened freeloader prays. What are you doing? Arresting you? Ordering without intending to pay? Shame on you. Shame on you. That is worse than shoplifting. Mr. Zomdish, I leave it to you. She's definitely defective. You see, I ordered her to my specifications, and then she deserted me for the children. She took my pointer. She took his pointer. Scrutinizing B9, Zomdish notes. Primitive. Well, if she is defective, that could make a difference. Where is she now? I'll take you to her. You'll see that I'm right. Rolling his eyes in feigned grief, Zumdish sighs. I do hope that I'm not going to have to be harsh with you. It upsets my whole day having to be harsh. I wouldn't dream of upsetting your day this way, sir. After you? No, sir. After you. Finally, with a click of the heels, Zumdish relents and takes the lead out leaving Dr. Smith a chance to snap at B9. Pointer indeed. Come along, you clod. That was a very funny scene, Kurt. And the chemistry and facial expressions between those two scene chewers was gold. But the funniest part was the way that Dr. Smith just accepted this whole bizarre situation at face value. Celestial (laughs) department store and all. 
Oh, yeah, I don't know which is more unbelievable, that Smith is accepting this absurdity at face value or that the audience is. <laughs> now we seem to have to put up with anything no matter how crazy it is. It's like that frog in the warming water on the stove. You just keep accepting the absurdity factor every week until you're gradually acclimated to it. But when I think about how far we've come from the first season, my temper really starts to boil. They're turning our glorious sci-fi show into a joke. But it's a funny joke. So so I simmer down and I keep watching it, albeit with a half-frozen expression of total cringe. <laughs> yeah, and it just gets more and more kooky from here. But that And that's how it is every time with these episodes in the second season. The first time I watch it, there's a lot of cringe. And then the second time I start laughing. Yeah. You know? It's almost like black humor. You know, on the the surface level, you're kind of like disgusted at yourself for finding it funny. Right. And right. then you do find it funny. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, later with the act nearing its closure, we're back outside the ship as John carefully places a fourth canister of precious deuteronium into its special lead-lined case, while Mrs. Robinson dutifully assists. One more, and they're on their way to Alpha Centauri. But just then, the jocular mood is spoiled by the sudden arrival of the alien authorities, with Dr. Smith and the robot in tow. Sensing trouble, the professor tells Maureen to keep Penny and Verda inside as he readies his laser rifle and cautiously approaches the curious committee. Zumdish clicks his heels and formally introduces himself as representing the firm that created the android. He wants no trouble from Professor Robinson, but insists on having her brought out for inspection. But the professor balks. If the alien wishes to see Verda, he'll have to come inside, and without his security guard. Zumdish signals with a pop for his leering lummox to move closer, and warns the Earthling that in a show of force, he'd certainly be the loser. Nevertheless, John's terms stand. He sees Verda alone, or not at all. Still hoping to avoid trouble, the alien concedes, and uses the code to keep Mr. Clean outside. Then, with another click of his heels, Zumdish follows Professor Robinson inside the spaceship, trailed by Dr. Smith, who lingers long enough to give the guard a pop of his own before comically scurrying after the others. <laughs> you know, I was waiting for Dr. Smith to use the code, Kurt, but it really didn't seem to impress that old baldy, did it? No, no, but I like the guard's blank expression. It was his best acting so far, <laughs> a poker face. <laughs> now, maybe you can explain to me what's up with Professor Robinson refusing to bring Verda outside to be inspected. Mm. He obviously felt threatened enough to bring his gun out to confront Zumdish and his guard, yet now he's going to feel safer by bringing the alien inside their home? That doesn't seem to make any sense. Yeah. I say keep the threat outside. The last place I want aliens invading is inside my only safe refuge on this strange planet. But, you know, what do I know? I don't know. That did seem a little weird. But, you know, there was one little comment I didn't mention. At some point, Zumdish <laughs> mentions to John that uh, mm -hmm. we melted down our robots like yours a hundred years ago or something like that. And the robot at the end of the scene goes... Melted down. 
Indeed. <laughs> that was a funny little way to, to tap off that scene. So yeah. even B9's getting in on the act. Well, cutting inside, the alien agent begins his investigation while Penny and Marine stand by in tight-lipped apprehension. Circling Verda like a shark, Zumdish barks, Stand still! When he scrutinizes the android's unresponsive arm, the prickly proprietor groans in disapproval. You see? She's definitely inferior merchandise. Absolutely worthless. Aww. John irritably orders Smith to wait outside, but Zumdish says the doctor's right, referring to the mute maidservant as shoddy, shoddy. He adds they'll definitely have to take her back. Distressed, Penny asks what they'll do with Verda. Amused at her concern, Zumdish says he imagines the android will be sent to the salvage department, where perhaps some of her circuits can be useful in the newer models. Heartbroken at the thought, Penny grabs a wide-eyed Verda's arm and wails. No, you can't take her. I won't let you. The outburst earns a firm rebuke from John, who sternly tells her to go to her cabin, but Penny won't let it go. Oh, please don't let them take her. Please. Which earns an even sterner Penny from Dad. Mom gently intervenes, convincing her daughter to reluctantly let go of her friend and do as told. With the flap over, Zumdish makes a move to take possession of the defective merchandise, but is stopped flat by a finger poke on the shoulder from the professor, who tells Mr. Zumdish to leave Verda while they talk over their options. Incensed at the impertinence, the alien rolls his eyes and fastidiously brushes off the spot where John dared touch him, (laughs) then cautions the professor that he's in no position to dictate terms, adding that with one wave of his hand, he could have their spaceship disintegrated. But the threat falls on deaf ears. The professor insists they're still going to discuss it. Fishing out his gold pocket watch, Zumdish allows the Robinsons five minutes to deliver the android, and not one second more. Otherwise, they would be destroyed. Then repeats with a sinister giggle, destroyed. (laughs) before waltzing out of the airlock. Oh dear. With a menacing merchant gone, Maureen worries, could he really destroy the spaceship? John concedes it's quite possible. Appalled, she asks him what we're all wondering. What is he going to do? For once, Professor Know-It-All admits, he doesn't know. He honestly doesn't know. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Kurt, that may be a first. Not only does the professor not have all the answers, but he also didn't even suggest asking the computer to decide. (laughs) Yeah, that's one line I never thought I'd hear Professor Know-It-All say, that he doesn't really know it all. Mm. And there was another thing that made me curious. How would disintegrating the Robinsons help pay for the android? You know, I mean, enslaving (laughs) them, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, but disintegration, I I don't see the profit in it. Uh, but, hey, we've got to ramp up the danger here, right? Yep. There we go. Oh, you know, now that you mentioned it, he doesn't say he's going to disintegrate the Robins. He says he's going to disintegrate the spaceship. That makes even less sense, you know? <laughs> Get rid of the Robinsons and sell the spaceship. Uh, oh, man. That is too funny. Well, as the seconds tick by on Zumdish's timepiece... We'll have to take time out for this word from our sponsor before we see what happens next. 
Lost in Space has been brought to you by. This nonprofit podcast is made possible with support from. Monster Wax Trading Cards, makers of science fiction and horror monster cards since 1992. Check out their newest series, Lost in Space The Art of Ron Gross. It's a dramatic retrospective of the classic TV show in an incredible photorealistic style. Check them out at monsterwax.com. That's monsterwax.com. And also through the generous support of listeners via Patreon, where fans fuel their favorite shows. If you'd like to help, just visit patreon.com and search Alpha Control. When we return from the break to start the closeout act, everyone is gathered around Verda in the upper deck of the Jupiter 2, as Professor Robinson chairs a family conference, which may not only decide the fate of their adopted automaton, but our castaways as well. If Verda returns with Zumdish, she'll be scrapped, and they only have five minutes to come up with an alternative plan, or they may be destroyed. <laughs> Unmoved. Dr. Smith scowls and waves his hand dismissively at the passive-looking android. I say let them have a, one more word out of you, Smith. One more word. No, Don, let him, let him finish. As I see it, we don't have any choice. After all, they do own her, and we don't have the money they require for her purchase. Let them take her back. I know we don't have the money, but, well, maybe we could trade something for her. Well, it's a possibility. You have something in mind? Well, deuteronium's a universal currency, I think. I mean, everybody uses it. You would trade away our fuel? Give them the deuteronium, Daddy, please. Yes, we must. We don't even know if they'll take it. No, I think before we decide on this, we'd better understand what we're doing. Now, we're within one canister of having enough to blast off this planet. If Zumdish accepts our fuel, we may never leave here. Have you all taken leave of your senses? Shall we be deprived of the one thing which has kept us alive just for the sake of a machine? That's all she is, you know, just a machine, not a human being. I'm not so sure about that. Look. Flanked by her child champions, the camera lingers on a close-up of Verda as she raises her bowed head to reveal streaks of green teardrops running down her silver cheeks. The poignant picture catches everyone with a heart off guard. And after a moment, Major West quietly calls for a vote. John seconds the motion. All those in favor of trading our fuel for Verda raise their hands. One by one, the Robinson's hands, and even B-9's claw goes up in solidarity with their newfound companion. Except Dr. Smith, who pauses to vent his frustration on the robot and the rest of the family. You traitor! Madness! Absolute madness! Before dramatically storming off into the spacesuit locker. (laughs) Well... Once the Galactic Grinch is back in the closet... Wait a sec, is he in or out of the closet? Just checking. Uh, well, for now, he's in. <laughs> okay. Right. I want to keep that straight. Uh. <laughs> Carry on, sir. Carry on. <laughs> oh, you got me. John tells Penny to take Verda to her cabin. Appearing a little numb, the appreciative android rises and thanks them all before she and Penny disappear below deck on the electronic elevator. The scene ends somberly as John grimly confides to Maureen that Verda's thanks may be premature. Zumdish may not want to trade. Hmm. 
Well, Kurt, Dr. Smith may not have a heart, but I guess I still do, because I'll admit, there's a little lump in my throat seeing Verda's face lined with tears. Yeah, I'm beginning to hate the way that music cue is so effective in making me emotional. It's like the reverse of Pavlov's dog. You know, whenever you hear that theme, your heart just starts tugging, and my lip starts quivering. Yeah. It's, it's actually pretty embarrassing. Yeah, it's kind of like the story when you were getting choked up watching All That Glitters at Christmas time and everything. It seems like every time I've been watching this episode, I've been alone on a layover or at home alone. The kids and Lisa are gone or something. And that just amps up, you know, the, the emotional feelings when you see stuff like that. That's funny. You know, at one point I thought, you know that I'm getting older. It seems like I'm getting more emotional. I guess I'm getting more mature. And then I read in some medical journal that as you get older... You just get more emotional. It's a sign of aging. Now, is that depressing or what? (laughs) But it's true. That's what they say. Yeah. That's just one more thing to remind me I'm getting older. Mm. Exactly. Wow. Uh, But the good news is as you get older, you'll soon forget that I just told you that. So (laughs) don't worry about it. (laughs) Apparently, I'm already forgetting things. Uh, What was it we were talking about? Yeah, I can't remember anyway. Okay. Mm. Well, next, time is up, as we cut back outside the ship, where Zumtish and his glabrous goon stand impatiently with their backs to the camera as Professor Robinson bounds out the open hatch and approaches the negotiating table bearing their locked case of fuel canisters. The professor tells Mr. Zumdish that, although they have no money, they've nevertheless decided to keep Verda and propose instead to effect a trade. The anxious alien scoffs at the idea of trading for inferior merchandise, but John grins and affably says they like her just as she is. Intrigued, Zumdish bites, asking just what the Earthling has in mind. Spinning open the combination lock of the storage case, John dramatically pulls out one canister of deuteronium for the glittering girl bot. Opening the container and giving it the smell test, Zumdish grimaces and turns his back on the offer, declaring their deuteronium would have to be refined 100 times before the aliens could use it. You know, I got to interrupt a second here just to say, that's kind of a sobering to think that the way that they test the deuteronium is to smell it. You know, I mean, they could smell just how rich the radiation is, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> oh, this is very refined fuel right here. Let me get another <laughs> sniff of that. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's good. <laughs> uh. Well, undaunted, the professor carefully extracts another precious canister from the case and sets it down on the bargaining table. The camera zooms in on the astonished alien, whose eyebrows and ears pulsate in anticipation as he responds that perhaps something could be worked out. Hmm. The two men exchange smiles and a gentleman's handshake, which seals the deal. But before the ink can dry on their oral arrangement, a worried Maureen appears from inside, announcing that Penny and Verda are gone. Uh Uh-oh. Mrs. Robinson tries to excuse her daughter by saying that she was just worried they'd take Verda away. But Zumdish suspects treachery and is only calmed by the professor's assurance that it's no trick. If they don't find those girls before dark, he's not sure what will happen. John races inside to get Don's help, leaving Mrs. Robinson alone with Zumdish, who summons his hairless helper with an urgent pop. 
pausing to explain that his security guard is designed to track androids, the alien issues instructions to his bald buddy with another couple of pops. The pair of aliens then scuttle out of the campsite, leaving a befuddled-looking Marine to get her marching orders from John, who races out with Major West, instructing her on their way out of camp to take the deuteronium inside and close the hatch. Oh dear. Wow, that little trade negotiation was going so smoothly, right up until Mrs. Robinson dropped that bombshell news. But I did chuckle, Kurt, when she mentioned that the girls must have left through the emergency escape hatch. Now, I need to check my official Jupiter 2 blueprints because I'm sure there's one of those down on the lower deck, but it still wouldn't explain how they managed to get out since the whole bottom half of the ship is buried in sand. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, then again, maybe Verda used that hand swivel gesture that she did during the foot bath, but she did it super fast as she could dig a tunnel through all the sand. I mean, machines could do some amazing things, you know. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about bombshells, I thought the big bombshell was Zumdish revealing that the security guard was an android because he didn't say he was trained to track androids. He said he was designed to track androids. Correct. So it's like that Chinese guy in Blade Runner, you know, he said, he said you Blade Runner, you know, so apparently (laughs) this guy's a machine and it's not obvious because unlike the Verda, he's not silver. There's nothing that looks metallic about him at all. Okay, well, you're batting a thousand today. You're picking up on all sorts of subtle things because I'll just mention to you that, yes, originally, according to the script, there were supposed to be two security guards accompanying Zumdish, and they were both supposed to be androids. And again, as a cost-saving measure, they cut it down to one, and instead of making him silver or giving him some other costume, they just said, well, we'll go with the completely human-looking you know, elevator doorman effect there. But that was a pretty nice catch. You said designed is exactly right. Well, that's just amazing, though. I mean, we've been scraping the bottom of the barrel in budgetary restraints. (laughs) To go from two to one, that makes a little sense. But when you're skimping on the silver paint, wow. (laughs) I mean, just for people out there, just to let you know for certain, I can assure you there is no actual silver in silver paint, okay? (laughs) It's just grease paint. And he's even saving money on that now. Not even real silver. There you go. Well, with the urgency building, we cut to a rocky clearing away from the ship, where the armed Earthmen meet up with Zumdish for a quick situation update. Heads craning for any sign of the missing maidens. Professor Robinson reports nothing. There's not even a track. Oh, dear. But not to fear, says the alien. When his man finds the runaway Robotrix, he'll send up a signal. That sets off alarms for John, who stresses, no harm must come to Penny or Verda. Zumdish assures them his guard isn't programmed to fight unless attacked. Mm. Uh With time running out, the troubled trio dash out of the clearing to continue the hunt. So there it is again. You know, they're saying programmed, not trained. These programs. So this guy is definitely a robot. Exactly. But they're not hitting you over the head with it, which I appreciate. It's subtle. Yeah, but they are hitting you over the head with something else, because I'm guessing that since Zumdish added that caveat, unless attacked, we better hope they find those girls before Old Mount Baldy does, don't you think? Yeah, because then you're going to have something that's completely inexplicable, which has to do with lightning bolts coming from the guy's hand. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. 
Next, we finally catch up with Penny and Verda, who dash for cover behind a large purple boulder on the edge of a wide open path. Catching their breaths, the pair of runaways share another lesson in life. Asked why she's doing this, Penny tells Verda because she wasn't sure her dad could trade for her, and she vows not to let them take her away. Touched by the child's courage and selflessness, the android smiles back. If all humans are like them, she thinks it'd be very nice to be human. But the tender moment is interrupted by the unwelcome appearance of Zumdish's hulking hooligan, just a few meters away. Uh-oh. Despite Verda's sound warning not to attack, Penny impulsively lobs a potato-sized stone at the out-of-breath ogre, which harmlessly bounces off his back and reveals their presence to the gasping gorilla. Oh, dear. Hold your horses, pal. Did you just say Mr. Clean, our big-ass android, was out of breath and gasping? I did. Because they just indicated he was a machine in the scene right before this, and we were giving kudos for that. And now this robot is gasping for air? Doesn't anyone on the set read the script and you know connect the dots here? When I first saw this, I thought, well, maybe the wrestler's just too stupid to get the significance of the android lines. And he thought he was being a good actor by panting after running. And everyone else was just too scared to tell Tiger Joe Marsh how ridiculous that was. Yeah. And then I thought, well, maybe they were scared more of Irwin Allen, like the Duncans were, <laughs> at the, the doorway there, and didn't want to set them off by, you know, shooting another take or risk going past their six-day deadline. But it turns out that the truth is even more bizarre. Because according to an interview with Bill Mummy, Tiger Joe had an asthma attack on the set during his little jog into the scene. And he wasn't acting at all, that was real. Mm. In fact, when the director called cut, Tiger collapsed to the floor. Wow. He was fine after the treatment, but everyone was pretty shocked while it happened. And that's why they didn't reshoot it. Amazing. Wow. That's a neat little factoid. I did not know that. So Okay, wow. well, there's this fella on YouTube called Lost in Irving Land, and he brought this up. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I don't get to see all of them, but every once in a while when I hear this guy talk, you know, you could be uh, surprised by how, you know, some of the little minutiae that he'll throw in. That's crazy. And that's one of it. And I believe him because, you know, he's not quoting him. He's quoting Bill Mummy, and I bet he saw him say that in an interview. Oh, it sounds totally believable to me. I'll buy it. Mm-hmm. Wild. That's the source at any rate. Cool. Well, cowering behind that purple rock, the girls stare helplessly as the guard slowly raises a threatening finger, then unleashes a deadly bolt of cosmic energy in their direction. That was close. And the next one may be a bullseye, which has Penny asking Verda, can't she do something? At first, the android box. Her prime directive isn't programmed for aggressive action. But Penny schools her again. She's not just a machine. She's not. Fortified, Verda's face fills with resolve. She tells Penny to stay behind their craggy cover, then marches out like David to face the gruesome Goliath. But when the daring dame grasps a stone and raises her arm to strike in self-defense, we hear a familiar Austrian command to stop. <laughs> the camera cuts to the Robinson men bounding into the area, along with an astonished Zumdish, who can't believe Verda tried to attack his man. Emerging unharmed, 
Henny pleads with Dad not to let them take her friend. John calms his daughter and listens as Zumdish interrogates his reclaimed merchandise. You were programmed never to attack a security guard. I do many things now I was never programmed for. And you're not going to take their fuel from me, do you hear? You will take me back with you. I don't want to stay any longer. A bargain's a bargain, Zumdish. Can't you see what she's doing? I can see what she's doing, all right. She's lying, willing to sacrifice herself. It does not seem possible, not at all. This model was never programmed for self-sacrifice. Nevertheless, we have a bargain. There was no bargain made. No, 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 no. It simply could not be. I don't know how it happened. What I thought is a model 101 is not the 101 at all. Zandesh, what are you talking about? Miraculous transformation has taken place. This is a, the special deluxe android model 77B. Oh, there's not enough of value on this planet to trade for her. Then you're not going to take her to the scrap heap? Oh, my goodness, no. She's close to human now with qualities that are much in demand in this universe. She was willing to sacrifice herself in the name of love, and that's a rare thing indeed. Berta, you want to go with him? I'd love to be able to stay with you. But you're going to be leaving soon anyway, and there are many places where I'm needed more. Must you go? I'm afraid I must. But we'll still have time together before I leave. Eager to get going, Zumdish claps his hands, asserting control over the sentimental moment, leaving our comforted castaways to digest this miraculous turn of events alone. It does seem like an opportune outcome. After all, Verda's going to be all right, and they've got their fuel. But Major West appears bothered, prompting the professor to ask, why so glum? It's not that, he says. He just can't decide whether to have Smith drawn and quartered or simply boiled in oil. (laughs) John smiles at the thought. It might be interesting either way, he says. That it might, laughs Don, leaving us and the Robinsons giggling as they merrily exit the frame. You know, Kurt, give Major West a lot of credit. He seems to be the only one in the family with enough long-term memory to lay the blame squarely where it belongs. That's because he doesn't know that this time, B9 is really to blame. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Of course, B9 would probably love to be boiled in oil, but... That's true. A nice oiled bath like C-3PO. Yes. (laughs) Well, next, we're in an overgrown rocky area as Dr. Smith prods his cybernetic sidekick to drag the android machine into a new hidden location. Come along. Pull, pull, put some spirit into it. Before finally halting. Ugh, I'm completely done in. Energy cell exhausted. I can pull no more. Calm yourself. This will do nicely. It's a veritable gold mine, my dear boy. Fortune is ours. You must take it back. It does not belong to you. Never fear. Smith is here. I'm only barring it, and Mr. Zomdish should be delighted. I intend to make him a very rich man. How? By ordering some more verders, of course. Trading them as I did the first one. Giving them, um, polish, so to speak. Now, let me see. If they're worth a hundred when they arrive here, and I can increase their value to a thousand, yes, that's a reasonable price. That would represent a profit of nine hundred on each. Splendid. I should like to see Mr. Zumdish's face when he learns of my plans. Oh, isn't it lovely? 
Yes. <laughs> Lovely indeed, Kurt. <laughs> yeah. My eight-year-old pointed out to me all the rocker switches that Smith threw upward before are now in the middle position. <laughs> so maybe he's made some more purchases during the commercials. <laughs> That's why they do run them after all, you know, to get to, to run up your credits. <laughs> Sure. You know, it just occurred to me, if you can order anything, why don't they order a spaceship to <laughs> take them back back to Earth? Or, or maybe some more cans of detronium, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the universal currency. Wow. Yeah. Well, later with this tale nearing an end, the rest of the family are gathered by the alien's wonky spaceship to say their farewells to Verda and the Celestial Department Store staff. But Mr. Zumdish appears galled over his missing vending machine. Major West, sure, it was Smith again. And the professor tells the alien not to worry. They'll get it back for him. But the preoccupied proprietor isn't worried. He's just never had one stolen before. Coming out of his fog, the alien makes a grand wave of his hand, which produces another... brilliant blast of flash powder. When the smoke clears this time, the android machine is back with the missing meddler's smiling face on the screen. <laughs> Worried, Maureen exclaims, Look at Dr. Smith. Is he all right? Yes, indeed. You have but to push any of the buttons to free him. If you want to keep him, I would suggest that you do it right away. There's always a chance that he might be ordered from a different planet where I have a machine like this. Now, we must be getting back. I must be at the store before closing time. Then the mood and the music turn sentimental once more, as Verda puts on a brave face and tries to cheer the downcast children by promising them they can come visit her one day. And although she'll be doing the most important work she can, she'll never forget them. But her expression bears a hint of melancholy as she warmly embraces them, and her voice cracks just a little as she declares that she loves them both. Will and Penny reluctantly let her go, as she dutifully follows an impatient Zumdish and his man on board the spaceship, then turns to face her friends. Calling her name once more, Penny searches for the perfect last words, but can only manage a soft goodbye and a blown kiss. Still, her loving eyes tell Verda all she needs to hear, and she answers the girl by blowing back a kiss of her own. Mr. Zumdish ends the sappy sideshow with a commanding clap of his hands, which sends Verda to the back of the bus. But before he blasts off into space, he leans out to make one last comical offer to arrange a fair price for Dr. Smith. <laughs> the castaways smile but bite their tongues, which elicits a little chuckle from Zumdish, followed by a quick click of the heels and another coated pop to Mr. Clean causing the gilded cage to slide shut and power up for liftoff. Everyone stands clear and watches in wonder as the cosmic craft blasts off in a magnificent burst of cosmic energy and disappears high up into the stratosphere and beyond. 
You know, I'm still trying to get my head around how this spaceship works, okay? Remember, it didn't touch down. It literally exploded onto the scene. When it disappears, it does the same thing. A big explosion, and then there's a crater where it stood. And yet they look up in the sky like it's lifting off. Now, if it did take off and land that fast... Those guys have got to have the most incredible case of hemorrhoids ever. I'm just saying, the G-forces would have been amazing. (laughs) But maybe it's better that we don't ponder such things. Well, all I can tell you is get used to it, because this is how spaceships come and go from now on. You're never going to see one of those... One of those craft fly up, unless they recycle the old Hapgood ship footage. Now, isn't there a technique that Air Force pilots use when they're taking off with these incredible G-forces or something? It's something like they're like trying to... Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's called a... That's to stop from blanking out. Right. It's the anti-G... It's not to stop hemorrhoids, but it's... No, but it could give you hemorrhoids because it's called the anti-G straining maneuver. You basically clench up all the muscles in your legs and your diaphragm, and you're trying to squeeze the blood back up into your brain. Oh, okay. But you know... Because I I heard it was the corn cob maneuver, but you're calling it this (laughs) other nice thing. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And if you're flying the really fancy jets, you get to wear a G-suit, which is a pair of uh, basically coveralls that you wear over your legs that have little inflatable bladders. They automatically inflate whenever the airplane is pulling G. So you still do the maneuver, but it helps you. Interesting. I love it. The corn cob maneuver. I'll I'll have to remember that one. Oh, boy. Well, when the smoke clears, a grinning Major West shakes his head and cheerfully tells Judy, you know, for two cents, I'd take Zumdish's advice. But staring back at the alien apparatus, his tone changes to resignation. But then again, I'd never have the pleasure of watching you try to get out of work again, would I, Doctor? Oh, well. Glancing back at Judy's Cheshire smile, he rolls his eyes and gives in. Marching over to the device, with a flip of a switch, the android machine spins into life, and we finally get a chance to see its transpositive generation power as the front panel slides up to reveal that humanoid cybernetic silhouette that's quickly obscured by yet another blast of flash powder. When the dust settles, there's a fresh merchandise transfer tube in place, containing a statue like Dr. Smith, eyes closed and hands raised above his head in that frozen touchdown signal. When the Major swivels open that tube, the comatose conniver sleepwalks one step out of the chamber, then wobbles a moment before finally snapping out of his fugue state. Hello, I must have dust off for a moment. I had the strangest dream. I turned out it was a piece of merchandise in some galactic department store. Oh, sure, Smith. In the bargain basement. Fiddly fi, Major. Your bars will never harm me. Indeed. <laughs> Our castaways watch and chuckle as Dr. Smith storms out in a typical huff, giving us yet another all's well that ends well happy ending. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on the android machine. I don't know. May I please be excused? I promise to give Dr. Smith a sponge bath. (laughs) No, seriously. If you like the serious sci-fi installments of Lost in Space, this episode sucked bigly. But this series has evolved or devolved into a different show entirely. Less like Star Trek and more like the Orville. (laughs) Mm. Me... 
I love the serious episodes best, and whenever I see these goofy, semi-campy comedy characters like Mr. Zumdish, <laughs> it always kind of irks me at first. But after a while, I lower my expectations, and I accept the reality that I'm not going to get reality, you know? Mm. It's absurd from the get-go, but hey, that's what makes comedy funny, right? The absurdity all. Right. Which reminds me, how many times are the Robinsons going to be in this situation where powerful aliens visit them, threaten them, and then accept them and leave them on friendly terms, you know? Yeah. Isn't that something? It is. And absolutely nobody stops to say, hey, before you leave, could you just give us a map or maybe give us a lift? We'd really appreciate it, you know? Mm. Nope, never seems to come up. No one ever says, dang, we really should have asked that before they took off. Mm-mm. Space circus, prisoners of space, this episode. I guess we're just going to have to start putting these oddball troops into the unintentional humor category. Yeah. I liked Verda. I think that she could have done more in her transformation and evolution, but the emphasis is more on the comedy than the pathos, and that's understandable. And overall, I'd give this one a solid B, but with an asterisk that it's a comedy episode and not to expect very much in the reality or serious sci-fi category. Mm. You know, I begin to think that Lost in Space has divided itself into two groupings based on age, like comic books. You know how comic books had the golden age? the Silver Age, and the Bronze Age. Mm -hmm. This first season of Lost in Space was by far the Golden Age, you know? And now this second season is pretty much turning into a Silver Age, don't you think? Yeah, I guess you could categorize it that way. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think we're always hoping for more thrills, chills, and sci-fi action with these stories. But I admit, I really enjoyed this very fantastical episode, which aired just a few days before Halloween in 1966, which... Might seem strange because, as we mentioned, even though it had a somewhat interesting-looking monster, it really wasn't that scary at all. Yeah, there was no Halloween theme to it that I could detect in the least. No, no. And, of course, as always, we can thank Irwin's thriftiness and the CBS censors for that downplaying of the fright factor. Mm. But I do kind of enjoy these more tender-hearted stories. And like you, I did find myself liking this Verda character. I also got a charge out of Fritz Feld, a Zumdish, as always. He's always playing the same type of character. But in this case, as absurd as it was, it really fit with the story. Yeah. And, you know, we had some great characters from season one that we wished we'd gotten to see again, like the Keeper or even the Space Trader. Of course, there were others that I never want to see again, like Magic Mirror Boy, but we'll leave that aside. Oh, yes. <laughs> but this episode had not one, but two characters I wouldn't mind coming back. So to paraphrase that old showbiz line, this episode left me wanting more. Fortunately for me, I'll get my wish. Before we finish, let's talk about the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. A few days later, we're up on a high bluff overlooking the parked chariot as Will and the robot observe Dr. Smith finishing repairs on their remote weather station. Bragging to William on the operation's smashing success, Smith's victory lap is short-lived when the robot sourly reports that he failed to secure the sensitizer wires. (laughs) Scoffing at the Neanderthal ninny's impertinence, and despite Will's gentle encouragement, Dr. Smith refuses to even check the wires. Just then, Professor Robinson shows up to look in on the boy's progress. But when the ten-plated traitor starts to tattle, his tongue is held by Dr. Smith, who confidently tells the professor that all that is needed is a push of the switch. And we know how good he is at pushing (laughs) switches. But when Smith activates the device, the demonstration ends with predictable results, 
a nasty flash powder blast, and a scream of shock from the rattled rascal. But just then, the mood goes from surprise to suspense. When B-9 alerts of an approaching alien giant dressed in strange gladiator's garb, uh-oh, the smirking stranger silently crosses his arms and stands mutely a few steps away from our castaways. It's a tense moment, but sensing no hostile intent, the professor elects to approach the alien and offers the universally understood gesture of goodwill, his open hand. Unfortunately, John's act of friendship is rewarded with treachery when the alien throws him to the ground and begins to mercilessly assault poor Professor Robinson. Oh dear. Stunned, Dr. Smith cowers behind Will as the attack intensifies, but even though he appears outmatched by the aggressor, somehow John manages to best the brute by forcing him off the edge of the bluff. Everyone sighs in relief, but Professor Robinson's reign as King of the Hill is all too brief, because suddenly he's blindsided when an even fiercer fiend races in, lifting the professor up like a ragdoll high over his head and threatening to toss John off the rocky ledge to certain doom. Now what? But before we can find out what happens next, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. (laughs) Wow, Kurt. I think Professor Know-It-All's intuition is starting to fail him. I mean, just the way those goons were dressed was a hostile act to me, so I don't know what John was thinking. Yeah, really. You've only visited three planets so far, and yet he's confident enough (laughs) to proclaim a quaint Earth custom like handshakes as a universal gesture of goodwill. I've never even left Earth, and I'm willing to bet that if there's really millions of planets and aliens out there, not all of them even have hands. Uh, Some might have crab claws. Yummy. Others might have tentacles like the calamoriites, (laughs) and others could have nothing like blobs. Remember those space barnacles from the derelicts? They didn't have any feelers at all. Yeah. I got to say, though, <laughs> it's beginning to sound like a seafood buffet out there in outer space land. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> but how quickly we forget. If they don't have hands, basically, John is just asked to be cut down a size or two by claiming Earth custom is going to be universal. So hopefully you won't yeah. get too battered up because there are kids watching. But we'll find out next week. Uh Well, I give him a pass. I mean, everyone seems to speak English, so maybe they're familiar with Earth customs. I don't know, but we'll have to find out. That's cool. Yep. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of ALF Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing episode 37 of Lost in Space, titled The Deadly Games of Gamma 6. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.